In the 1967 episode, the sleeping giants of Carlton and Richmond finally awake from their slumber and start to set the pattern for the next decade and a half at least. Uh, we should also mention that their rivalry really starts to take hold this season. Two legends of the game retire by season's end, while future legend Bulldog Murray is back. There's upheaval at the Dogs, Brian Dixon has a very busy day, and we also check in with Charlie to see how he's feeling after the Demons' premiership victory in the present day. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz to hear what they all have to say. Alright, welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. The Australian Rules Football History podcast takes a deep dive into the history of the league. I've got some very excited Demon supporters here. Um, not really much point in saying anything else. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> has, welcome. Hi everybody, thanks for listening. Living on a high, Timmy. Good to see you you got to tell us how you're feeling. Um, can, you, uh, can you tell by the sound of my voice how I'm feeling? Um, I can't believe the Demons it Premiers. It's hard. It, has, it, it hasn't quite sunk in. <laughs> it's, how, did you, uh, how did you watch the game? Uh, well, I mean, what a strange experience to, uh, to be watching it, you know, in lockdown. Yeah. Um, had, it, had it up, uh, had the sound as loud as possible to make sure that I felt like I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just, just, just loved every minute of it. It was just even at incredible. Third, in the third quarter, geez, that was a bit stressful. You, had you given up? You're like, oh, demons of old. No, no, I was just I, there was still enough because it was close enough. There was still well, well enough time, and also I had that, um, that belief, and it did end up happening that we run out games so well. Yeah, that I, I rewatched the second half yesterday. That last minute where you kicked three goals, just killed everything. It was, it was just, it sucked the air out, didn't it? It was just very quick. And the guys who had to do it, did it. It was Oliver, it was Petrarca. It was, you know, it was just. Man, they absolutely killed the, uh, killed the contest so you could enjoy the last quarter. I know. Well, I still like there was, there was a fair bit of the the first half of the last quarter, even when we just smashed it. I was still, the heart was in my mouth. I was like, oh. Because they're so strong. They could have, you know, they could have come back. But Jesus. At what point did you know you'd won it? At the point of the classic line, we've said it before, at the Lee Matthews point where there were more goals than minutes left, I felt comfortable. Yeah. What did you do when the siren went? Oh, I, I was shedding. I was real. I actually was shedding tears. It was yeah. just that, that moment of relief, release when you're like, this has really happened. It was just ridiculous. For such a long time, and I mean, I mean there's people who've been waiting for a lot longer than I have, but for such a long time, it just it never looked like it was going to happen. Yeah. Because... There was always something to go wrong. There was always so, some something happening that ruined any chance we had. You know, the decisions that were made just weren't good. Even when we were travelling well, there was something where it was like, no, nah, we can't do it. When we got close, we got clobbered. Like, you think the only opportunities we've had, 2018, we got smacked. Uh, 2000, we got murdered. 88, we got killed. Like, it was... You know, any time we got within a sniff, we yeah. were we were told, no, nah, it's not yours. Yeah, there's always someone better. There was always someone someone better. And even though 
we were there we were never really, really even thereabouts like we were we were lucky to get to that point and then to stumble at the final hurdle and then and then they just come out and do that it's just extraordinary and what do you think as, as soon as the siren went it was good, good marketing ploy. As soon as the siren went, I got a text message from the Melbourne Football Club being like, here's the link to the shop for all the Premier's gear. <laughs> I bought I bought a couple of T-shirts, the Premier's cap. We've got the bar runner. Like, got a, I've got the, the Mark Knight poster. It's, uh, it's all happening. It's hard to quantify, isn't it? Like, I now know how you must have been feeling in 2000. Yeah, but, I mean, I was at that point where I'm like, you know, we're, we're used to making finals. I'm used to winning finals. So this is just another one. Yeah. Uh, lucky me. And it then, just wasn't that thing. Yeah. So, I mean, if we won one now, I mean, it's not the 57 years you've experienced or your whole lifetime you've experienced, but it, it would still be pretty special. I, it would be much more yeah. now. Well, and also because you've like, and, and this is the thing is, as you, we said, like the, the, the hard times make the good times so much better. And you've been through a hard time, a couple of hard times now. Yeah. All the class, I can say, you know, everyone's got their stories. Absolutely. I've, I've got to say, a- in terms of doing this podcast, we have timed it to perfection for you. Haven't we? Because we started this year looking at 55. We've done all six of Melbourne's last six that we had it to that, that point. And I was like, oh, maybe Charlie's going to leave the show. There's no more Demon's Premierships. And now you have to stay. <laughs> now I'm on the hook. No, but, I mean, <laughs> in terms of like all that sort of stuff, like we interviewed Adam... Woolcock about the, the nineteen sixty four book. We're reading the Chadwick book that we're gonna we're organizing the interview for. Yeah. Everything has been falling into place for the demons anyway. The days. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? And just all the like all those little signs where you're like, oh, you know, when you know the Tokyo Olympics were sixty four, the Tokyo yeah. Olympics of twenty twenty, like all those little things. <laughs> and there's been a I love the fact that like there's been a real embrace of of the history, you know, this year talking to talking about where where we were as a power you know powerhouse club and all that sort of stuff and and not being overawed by by the weight of 57 like in ne- Gorney especially whenever he spoke about it it was never or you know 57 years is you know it's it's a long thing it's but you know he never he never felt sort of like he was carrying the weight of it it was like no this is a, you know we're gonna we're gonna bring this home like yeah. we we're gonna we're gonna break this and I lo- like like I gotta say, like I've always been big on, you know, talking about the curse of the red fox and stuff. I feel like it's a bad rap for Norm Smith because the curse of the red fox isn't about him cursing us. It's about the fuck up of getting rid of him that caused the curse of of Norm Smith. Yeah, and again, I kept kept hearing on the weekend, you know, Norm Smith got sacked, and like there was no, oh, he got rehired. Two days, four days later, like yeah. they never follow that up. It's always like oh, he Melbourne no. sacked him, and that and the greatest day, the greatest. And that was go. it. And that was it. But it was yeah, it was it was interesting. Anyway, it was good to go, good to uh, get down to the G. The ran down. I sort of sent you a photo, Timmy. Ran down to the G on Saturday, and there was plenty of red and blue around just in the afternoon, just to go have a chat to Jimmy and yeah. Norm and, and Ron, yeah, just to make sure they were on board for the game. Have you been back and, since? Uh, I haven't. I haven't yet. I need to get back down. Apparently, there were a lot of people down there yesterday. I, heard, I saw. Yeah, that's probably the only disappointment of this flag is that they couldn't be there for the uh, the day after sort of celebrations with with everyone. Absolutely unbelievable. And, and how do you feel now? Like, has it sunk in that your your team is the premiers? I t- was talking. We I went for a walk with with Namtar this morning, and we were walking up the street, and I just had this. I, it just came across me for a minute. I was like. I had a smile on my face and, and she was like, what is it? And I was like, there's nothing 
negative to say about the Melbourne Football Club at the moment. There's nothing to look forward. There's no every other year that I've been a Melbourne supporter, it's been, <laughs> oh, we've got this draft pick and all oh, these guys were going to be looking good and I've heard good things about the preseason. None of it matters. There's not a conversation to be had yeah. about where we could go. We did everything we could possibly have done. And in some of the finest fashion we've it's ever been done in. Like right. that is the best win Melbourne's ever had in a grand final. And then it all starts again. And hopefully they and, can uh, do something to celebrate in Melbourne as well. Well, that's it. And I'm sure they will. And that's been part. That's, I mean, all clubs, most clubs are really good at it. But they, 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 they've been incredible with like really bigging up how important the supporters are and how, you know, they, all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure they'll do some stuff once we're allowed to. Hmm. And look, who knows what's, what's, what the future brings. But you think by next year, it's all, we're all, we're all going to be back at the G. Yeah, so absolutely. It, it's a good time. And hopefully, um, the president's husband can unfurl the flag. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say that. I'm not even sure if Kay Roffey's married, but I, I'm, I'm just assuming. But here you go. So hopefully that we can get that hat going on. Go see that. Yeah. All right. Well, we better get yeah. better get into talking about 1957 season then. Uh, the 1967 season then. Should we just skip ahead? Should we skip ahead to 2021? <laughs> <laughs> no. 67 good times. All right. Now, Charlie, before you get into some history. I know you're yes. hanging for a song. Yeah, tell me, tell me. I've got, I've got a couple of ideas looking through the events in history. Some great albums came out this so year, but I'm going to be very surprised to hear what you've got to say. The one I picked won't be the one that you're thinking. Uh, some classic Engelbert Humperdinck. A song called The Last Waltz was number one for nine weeks in Australia. You're right. That's definitely not what I was thinking when you had bit of Pink Floyds, some Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, you know, yes. The Doors. Yeah, mo- the song. So the way I'm picking songs now is I'm looking at the Australian charts from then and trying to pick one out Fair of them. Fair enough. And you've gone with Engelbert Humperdinck. I tell you what, he can yeah. mix it with all of those guys. It was it was number one for the longest time in 1967 in Australia. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, very interesting. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, on that note, let's get started with some events of 1967. Now, there was plenty going on in '67, Timmy. Lots of things happened. It was a great year. Yeah. Um. And uh, so here we go. On the 12th of January, this is one of my one of my faves, actually. Actually, James Bedford became the first person to be cryogenically preserved with the intent of future resuscitation. Right? How's so it going? It wasn't what it wasn't Walt Disney. Right. Okay. It's Dr. James Bedford, and he's still there. He's still being preserved somewhere out there. Can we go and visit him? There you go. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how great the compensation would be at this stage. Yeah, okay. uh, on the 15th of January, you know, I don't, I'd, I'd love to hear more about this because I've never heard of this before. But uh, in in American football, we had the green, not in, not NFL team, in American football, the Green Bay Packers defeated the Kansas City Chiefs 35 to 10 in the first AFL NFL World Championship game. No. On the 27th of Jan. Uh, we had U.S. astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger um, Chaffee, uh, Chaffee think it is, of Apollo 1, unfortunately killed when the fire broke out in this Apollo spacecraft during a launch pad test. Uh, and on the 3rd of February, we had Ronald Ryan becoming the last man hanged in Australia. Oh, wow. The murdering guard while escaping from prison in 1965. 
On the 28th of April in Houston, we had Muhammad Ali refusing military service. And so he was stripped of his boxing title and barred from professional boxing for the next three years at the peak of his powers. On the 1st of May, we had Elvis Presley marrying Priscilla in Las Vegas. I mean, where else would they get married? It's, it's about time he settled down. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, on the very next day, we had the Toronto Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. And it is their last Stanley Cup and last finals appearance still to date. Uh, on the 25th of May, we had uh, Celtic FC becoming the first Northern European football club to win the Euro Cup, which is now the Champions League. And yep. on the 27th of May, uh, in some non-sporting news, we had the Australian 1967 referendum passing with an overwhelming 90% of support, uh, removing from the Australian Constitution two discriminatory sentences referring to Indigenous Australians. And this was an extremely significant first step, or proper first step, in recognising the Indigenous rights of Australians. Yeah. Uh, on the 8th of July, we had John Newcomb winning the men's singles at Wimbledon, defeating Wil Wilhelm Bungert, 3-6-1-6-1. On the 28th of September, we had amendments made to the South Australian Licensing Act, which effectively ended the era of the six o'clock swill in Australia. Uh, on the 20th of October, the Aussies unlinked the Australian dollar from the British currency because Britain uh, devalued the pound sterling slightly. On the 17th of December, we had Prime Minister Harold Holt disappearing while swimming at Cheviot Beach, 60 kilometres from Melbourne, better known as Porty Back Beach. Uh, he was replaced by John McEwen, who was the leader of the National Party, until, but then he stood down and the, then the Liberal Party elected Minister for Education and Science, John Gorton, as their leader. Mm. And then on the 31st of December, the very last day, two big things. The Packers, Green Bay Packers again, became the first team in the modern era to win their third consecutive NFL championship, 21-17 over the Dallas Cowboys. Yep. What is now apparently known as the Ice Bowl. Okay. And also on that very same day, Motorcycle Daredevil, Evil Knievel, attempted to jump 141 feet over the Caesars Palace fountains on the Las Vegas Strip. Knievel unfortunately crashed on landing and the accident was caught on film. So oh. if you'd like to see more, check it out on YouTube. Nice. Have you got a Melbourne Cup winner for us? I don't have a Melbourne Cup winner this year. Oh, my gosh, what an oversight. I'll have to look that up quickly while I'm looking at the births here. Hang on. So do you want to hear about some people who were born? Always. The last time you last year, you only chose one, so you've got a bit more. That's true. That is true. I've I've only got a few st sticking with the Aussies this year. Yeah, good to see uh, what so more than one person was born this year in '67. More than one. More than one. Yes. Uh, so we've got on the third of April the great racing driver Mark Skate. Yep. Uh, on the thirty-first of May, Sauce, the big Stephen Silvani, was born. On the twentieth of June, we had Nicole Kidman. On the 5th of October, Guy Pearce. On the 26th of October, Keith Urban. Now, I always thought there was a bit more of a difference between those two, but apparently yeah. not. That's very close. And, yeah. And on the 1st of November, we had Tina Arena, one of the all-time greats. <laughs> Sweet Sorrento Moon Timmy. Indeed. Love that. Oh, and here you go. The 1967 Melbourne Cup was won by the New Zealand-bred, Australian-trained thoroughbred, Red Handed. Yeah, can't miss that one. Thank you for reminding me. Um, 
All right, so uh, let's get into some league news then. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. So firstly, uh, some interesting news. So former Ruckman of Carlton, Graham Donaldson, who's, who's been coaching in Morwell um, and worked at the State Savings Bank of Victoria, convinced the bank's head office to sponsor a new competition involving children under 12, representing their VFL clubs, which eventually turns into the Little League. Ah, awesome. that's cool. So, so it started first, in 60. That's a long time ago. That's yeah, so quite first, surprising. The first Little League games appear, happened in 67, and then it eventually grew into a bigger thing with each, every club represented. But, yeah, started from an idea by Graham Donaldson. That's really interesting because I always thought it came out of Auskick Little League, but it, yeah, well, I, I can remember Charlie before Auskick. It was called Vic Kick, and I, I remember doing Vic, Vic Kick. Kick. I remember Vic Kick. I yeah. do remember Vic Kick. Yes, <laughs> I like the name Little League better than Auskick. <laughs> yeah. Um, li- also, on Anzac Day, a representative match was played at the MCG between the Victorian team from the previous year's Carnival and a team representing the best of the rest of the league mm-hmm. uh, with the carnival team wearing the big V and the rest wearing a red jersey with a blue yoke and a white collar. Red jersey with a blue yoke and a white collar. Okay, yeah. interesting. And the rest beat the carnival team 121 to 67. Um, would you like a Waverley update? Please. So I found, I found an article about Waverley and giving the year-by-year step. So 67, grading work began and 378,000 cubic yards of friable, friable soil and sand excavated and used to form the banks for some sections of the stadium. Well, there you go. I love and a good bit of friable soil, <laughs> I'll tell you. And the surface of the oval is 27 feet below the level of the surrounding lands. The only other piece of news is more weather-related um, you'll remember in the early 60s, we talked about how wet it was. In 1967, Australia or Victoria experienced one of the most intensive droughts for over 100 years. Oh, okay. You know what a drought's going to mean? More goals. It certainly is. Plenty more. Okay. In 12th place, Footscray. Ugh. Four wins, 14 losses, with a percentage of 71.6. Guys, Footscray falling right down. They certainly have. So, a bit of a change at the top there as well, Charlie. Yes, yes. So, a bit of a change uh, going on down at Footscray here with uh, Charlie Sutton taking over as coach. Uh, Mr. Football, of course, still captain. Yeah, so that caused real um, tension at the club, obviously. Obviously, Ted Witten replacing Sutton as well back in the 50s. Yes, um, yeah. So really interesting to see that happen. Ted Whitten was pretty angry about this and was tempted to leave. Um, Richmond actually asked him to apply for a clearance, but they were never going to clear it. No, of course not. And he was eventually talked around to uh, to coming coming back, but yeah. It does seem really interesting because I think in in the previous years, like when they were when they were sort of. Um, captain coach together in that well, well he took over in 57 right like they seem to have a pretty good relationship at that time so yeah and look it, it was nothing against charlie sutton charlie sutton didn't come and usurp ted Witten's job it was all the board and just that's what happened yeah saying that you know probably better for him to focus on the on-field stuff or yeah yeah and he and he kept the uh 
kept the captaincy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But then it doesn't surprise us that the doggies finished last, does it, Kaz? No, that's right. It wasn't the edge they were looking for. Um, now, a debutant for Footscray, Kaz, was Gary Dempsey. Tell us a bit more about him. Okay, Tim, Gary Dempsey. Played Footscray and North. Uh, Dempsey was one of the finest ruckmen of the modern era. Tall and extremely well built. He was an exceptionally good mark and was an expert in giving his small men first use of the ball. Footscray recruited him uh, from the Footscray Technical School, Old Boys. Gary Dempsey. No, so they didn't start well. They had a loss first up in round one to the Saints. Always tough coming up against the reigning premiers. Weird saying that about St Kilda. Um, round <laughs> two was their first win against Richmond, who were the new up-and-comers. Um, Dallas, Peter, Dallas Patterson kicked five goals for the Dogs that day. Um, mm. Round five was their second win of the season, which was a thrilling one-point win over the Demons. Don McKenzie was the hero, sneaking onto the ground undetected and around, making his way around the boundary and marking over Tassie Johnson and kicking the winning goal. Mm. Tassie just didn't see him. Yeah, he's getting, they're getting too old these days. There's a lot of that going on in Tassie. <laughs> um, so following a round eight shock loss to the Lions, the committee decided to insert drastic measures and started making the players train three nights a week, um, as well as cancelling the end of season trip. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So drastic measures. Um, in round 10, Ted Witten played his 272nd game for the Dogs breaking the all-time record. He did a lap of honour along with John Schultz and Ron Barassi as they were playing Carlton in that game. The Dogs went down by 16 points. Um, round 15, they had an upset win against Collingwood, though, at Western Oval, Witten Oval. Uh, Don McKenzie kicking eight goals, one, and the Doggies seven goals to two in the last quarter to win by a goal. So a big, huge comeback. Um, but then they lost the last three games by a combined total of seven points, so really close losses there. Um, which ultimately meant that Charlie Sutton's stint as the coach had been as unsuccessful as the previous two seasons. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing probably Don McKenzie is the leading goal kicker, Charlie. No, it was it was uh, your man uh, George Bissett actually was the lead goal kicker, so, which is very surprising for a man. You know, if he's getting them that many kicks, yeah. And then so he's obviously playing up the field a bit as well. He's getting a lot of it to get his 27 goals. Isn't a huge. It isn't a huge total. So and who do you reckon won the Charlie Sutton uh, medal? In the... I reckon George Bissett probably took yeah. that too. Sorry? George Bissett took that too? No, he didn't. It was uh, Don Gillard. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah, he had an all right season. Yeah. So there you go. It's knocking off Johnny Schultz, who's won the last three there. Yeah. It's great. Uh, legend. Well, some things being salvaged out of the season there. Um, dwelling down the bottom of the ladder, along with Footscray, in 11th place is Fitzroy with same four wins, 14 losses, and percentage of 72.1. And Kaz, yes. guess, who's, guess who's back, Kaz? Oh, tell me. Is it Kevin Murray? He, he is. He's back as captain. We've still we've got Bill Stevens still as coach. Uh, oh in his third year now there as coach but Kevin Murray back as captain back from WA and, and straight back in as captain yes yeah. taking over um, from uh, Ralph Rogerson yeah yes. um, uh, got some interesting, interesting debutants for you as well Kaz we've got Noel Zunneberg 
Barry Knight and Andrew Cooker. And a legend of the club, John Murphy, who is Mark's dad, Mark Murphy's dad. Um, So can you tell us a bit about John Murphy, guys? Everybody, John Murphy. So, son of Hawthorne Best and Ferris winner Leo Murphy, you may remember. Murphy was an excellent footballer who gave Fitzroy great service in the centre on the half-forward line or roving. It's like Max Gorn. Um, a great ball winner he was sometimes criticised for his placement of the ball no not Max Gorn Uh, but Fitzroy did not have the players further afield to win the ball Murphy debuted in the first game of 1967 and had an unbroken run of 158 games a record uh, from debut that was subsequently broken by Sydney's anyone? Adam Good Jared Crouch Uh, (laughs) alright one of the other things about Fitzroy's season, um, they've moved home grounds. So looking yes. to uh, get some better facilities, they are now sharing Princess Park with Carlton. And finally, their jumper has also changed ever so slightly with a dark blue panel on the top changed to royal blue. So yes. their very first game uh, of the season was at Princess Park against their co-tenants, Carlton. And this wasn't a pretty game. Uh, they only kicked five goals and were humiliated by 94 points. Uh, John Murphy made his debut in this game uh, and it actually took Fitzroy up until round eight for their first win, which which was a four-goal win over the Dogs. Alex Rusklix uh, kicks five goals, one, as the Lions led from pillar to post. Jeez, that hurts though, doesn't it? Eight eight games without a win is just, as a supporter, to watch, watch your team do that is just... It hurts a lot, doesn't yeah, it? especially when they're like they're reinventing themselves or a new home ground. You'd be so excited the Bulldogs back at the club as well, wouldn't you? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, then round nine things got even worse. Uh, so they played Collingwood, who beat them by 101 points. They didn't kick a goal in the first half, and all four of their goals were kicked by Alex Rusklick. Geez, that's um, it's a fair stand-up performance from him, isn't it? Hmm. It took till uh, round 13 for their first win at the new home ground. In style as well, they smashed the Swans by 53 points. John Newham kicked 5-2, and John Murphy impressed with 29 disposals and a goal. Bulldog Murray chipped in with two as well. You'll be happy to hear, Kaz. Absolutely. Uh, a bit of sad news. Prior to, round, prior to round 14, which was the game against the Tigers, Len Smith died of a heart attack. Oh. So it's quite poetic that um, as a former player and coach of the Lions and coach of the Tigers, these two teams would meet then. Um, yeah. And I think they had a they had a bit of a moment of silence to remember Len. And then the Lions were able to keep up with the Tigers with the spirit of Len Smith for the first half. But the Tigers managed to get away just in the end to win by nine points. Um, but yeah, sad news about Len Smith. Um, but then the Lions had strong wins over North in round 16. A seven goal to none third quarter, giving them the lead and saw them ultimately win by 39. Round 17, they trailed the Ds by 14 points at three-quarter time, but those Lions dug deep. They came roaring back, um, but still trailed by three points with four minutes to play. Then Lions Ruckman David Skies received a free from a ruck infringement, staggering forward with his arms out, playing for the free kick. He took it, he took his kick right in front of goals and converted as the Lions won by two points. And then round 18, Kevin Murray saved his best for the last game of the season. 33 disposals, 
in a loss to the Hawks, though. Sharing their home ground and sort of moving around, they're kind of – they've lost their way, haven't they, a bit? Well, this is, yeah, this is the start of that, Charlie, as well. And yeah, the, that's what I was talk- about to ask. So this is kind of the beginning of their nomad vagrant life. phase. Yeah, and the players yeah. even talk about how they – you know, they'd be at training, they'd look up and all the – the names of all the stands to be all these Carlton legends and have nothing to do with them. Yeah, it sort of it does. It really displaces a team and even their supporters to some extent as well. I mean, I know they're right next next to it, but it's not their home ground anymore. It's not their cauldron, right? It's yeah, kind yeah. of it's a very interesting. So, who do you think got the best and fairest for the Lions this year? Surely, Kaz's man Bulldogs back into it. Please, no, it's not straight back him straight to the top. For the third year in a row, it's Norm Brown and uh, lead goal kicker. Um, I'm Alex Raskovic. <laughs> With those four. No, well, it's game. not. He's risen again. It's Gary Lazarus in <laughs> 35. <laughs> in 10th place, lowly Hawthorne. Five wins, 13 yeah. losses. Percentage, 70.3. Sorry, May Blooms. Yeah. Big Jack Kennedy is back in charge down at down at the Hawks and uh, this and year firing. captain again is Graham Arthur yeah so they so um, you remember John Kennedy went to stall as a teacher because he got transferred there so he's been transferred back that's into, right yes back to back to Melbourne um, we've got some huge names as well debuting for the Hawks this year the first of those is Norm Smith yes. no relation the second is Michael Blood but these next two cars uh especially one of them, absolute legends, Don Scott and Peter Hudson. Tim, Charlie, Anna, everybody. Don Scott, one of the most feared ruckmen of his era. <laughs> Scott was a fierce competitor who used his weight and aggression at the ball to get to great advantage. Recruited from Box Hill, he was relatively short for a ruckman, <laughs> but used his body superbly and his fitness and competitive approach made up for a lack of natural talent uh, Scott was a master of using psychology on opponents and uh, said that he was also in control of situations even though it seemed that he had lost his temper Peter Hudson that's right from Hawthorne among the top two or three best full forwards of all time and we don't say that lightly this is nice. this is this is right up there. Many people will justifiably argue that he was the best ever. His average of 5.59 goals per game exceeds any other player in league history, and the figures tell the story of his greatness. He scored 125 goals in 1968. Ooh, uh, 120 in 69. 146 in 1970. And equaled Bob Pratt's season record of... 150. The, in 1971, and we could go on. There's probably a book good. about him. I know. Um, check multiple books. Well, Dan Eddy's working on a book for him at the moment, which I think is out soon. Um, they also managed to get a player called Ian Bremner, who was cleared from Collingwood, uh, and Jeffrey Angus. Anyway, the real story was Kennedy returning, and on yeah. his first training run of the season, um, he finished. They, he did a, a three-mile cross-country race. And Kennedy himself came came seventh, so he raced all those players. So <laughs> really, um... really testing them out because you remember how the fit, how fitness was his big thing. And so, who did he bring back to the club? Brendan Edwards to try and develop a new fitness regime to make the Hawks the fittest side in the competition. 
Um, so among those was. initiatives that Brendan Edwards brought in was twice weekly sessions at a farm in Boleyn, which you, you might have seen footage of this where the players had haul sandbags over hills and cross the Yarra. I was about to say that. Oh, yes. This is where they earned that nickname, Kennedy's Commandos. Ah, oh, nice. Geez, that's a real indictment on your team where if the coach is coming seventh in your, th- in your three-mile run, isn't it? Yep. But I really like that tactic as a coach as well, just doing that from the start. Yeah. Put a little bit of embarrassment into, you, into the guys who come behind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the season started well with a win over South Melbourne by 30 points at Glen Ferry. However, then they came up against the, the Blues and Wes Lofts lined up on Hudson in his very first game as a Hawk. Um, Hudson kicked four in this, but it, the papers did say that, uh, that Lofts outplayed him in his debut. Hawks then lost five in a row before beating the only side below them at that point, which was Fitzroy by 44 points. Another four losses followed before another win over South by 13 points in round 12. A loss to league leaders Carlton the next week was followed by a big upset win over the top side Geelong by 20 points at Glen Ferry. Uh, it was their, the Hawks' first win at Geelong in 12 games, uh, their last being in 1961. Yeah, wow. In this game as well, battle the full forwards. Duh, um, Peter Hudson kicked six goals. Uh, Doug Wade only kicked one, so there was a win there. Whoa. Yeah, the Hawks then beat them, and then the Tigers absolutely walloped them. Season was rounded out by a 28-point loss to North that sent the Hawks to last on the ladder and a 17-point win over Fitzroy, lifted them up to 10th and handed the spoon to the Doggies. You'd be pretty you'd be pretty happy with your, uh, with your first-year player who's a full forward playing the way Peter Hudson did, wouldn't you? How many goals did he kick? I'm, I'm guessing he was a, the leader. He was the leader, and he kicked uh, 57 goals. I mean, look, that's it's no John Coleman, but it's pretty good. <laughs> no, it's not. It is not. So, who do you reckon won uh, the uh, the Peter Crimmins medal? Gray Martha. No, it was Bob Keddy. In ninth place, South Melbourne. With five wins, one draw, and 12 losses. And a slightly better percentage with 82%. For the Swannies this year, uh, captain again is Bobby Skilton, but taking over from him as coach is Bob Miller. Yeah, which is an interesting choice because he... I'm not sure if he's the first one, but this is a player who didn't play at top level in Victoria. Really? Yeah, so... I don't know if he was the very first of this kind. I, I was trying to look into it, but yeah, he, he'd been coaching the under 19s at South Melbourne, so he it was one of those progressive things. But he just he just moved up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, Charles, um, Kaz, I've, I've got possibly the best name we've had for a long time. Yes. Uh, his name, the debutant, Weenie Van Lint. <laughs> <laughs> Weenie. Weenie Van Lint. Okay. Amazing. So he moved over from the Looney Tunes League, did he? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We've also got Bob Hando making his debut, but they lost Austin Robertson Jr. back to WA, who had been a big player for them last year. Uh, Round one, the Hawks beat them by five goals, which was no surprise because Bob Skilton was missing. He returned the following week to take on the Lions. He racked up 18 disposals and a goal. Saddolts kicked five as the Swans won by 38 to kick off their account for the year. They beat the Dogs in round three by the same amount, but Skilton kicked an inaccurate one goal four. Uh, in round four, Bob Miller, new coach, played mind games in the lead-up to the game against the Bombers by, <laughs> by not announcing the team's lineup until 1pm on the Saturday of the game. Ooh. Of course, he was censored by the VFL early in the next week. 
Uh, but the tactics seem to work as the Swans pile on goals in the middle of the game to win by 39 points. Max Papley best on ground. John Suttles with four goals. Um, and this was the first time the Swans had won three in a row since 1958. Now, round six, the, the Swans lost to the Cats at Cardinia Park. And Bob Miller described umpire Jeff Crouch's efforts as insipid and home ground umpiring. But this is Crouch we're talking about here. Yeah. But when you look at the free kick count, it's 34 to 42 in South's favour. So I couldn't find, apart from a book mentioning this, I couldn't find anything in the newspapers saying that there'd been an interesting umpiring. So I'm not sure what's happening here, but to call an umpire insipid is pretty bad. Yeah, he has his reasons. He's passionate. One or two decisions have obviously really stuck in his craw, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. Round seven against the ladder-leading Blues. The Swans could only kick two goals in the opening half and trailed by five goals at halftime. But then they roared back to life, led by Bobby Skilton. They kicked nine goals to four across the second half and took the lead. Carlton's Terry Board kicked a point to tie the game late from a dubious free kick. The game ended in a draw. Then, round eight, Bobby Skilton had the ball on a string as they took on the rating premiers. Right, he did. wrapped up 46 disposals. What? Four, so 44 kicks, two handballs, 10 marks, one hit out, and he kicked two goals one. He's really endearing himself to me. So the Swans kicked eight. The, yeah, me too. The Swans kicked eight goals to three <laughs> in the opening quarter, and this remained the difference for the rest of the game. Max Papley kicked four as well. Uh, but South's only other win of the season was in round 14 when they beat the Dogs by 31 points. Skilton copped the hard bump in this game and was quiet. He'd missed the next three games, and this kind of made, meant their side petered out. Uh, he pulled a thigh muscle at training, and on top of that, other injuries to the better players at the Swans saw them take a bit of a nosedive and finish, obviously, in ninth spot. Yeah, no good. They really, they, they, he totally carries this team, doesn't he? It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Him yeah. and a couple of others, but mainly yeah. him. Uh, who do you reckon kicked the most goals for the Schwannies this uh, year? It's either Suttles or Papley. Probably Suttles. Well done. It was with 35. Yeah. And, um, and who won the Bobby Skilton medal, do you reckon? Surely Bobby Skilton. <laughs> it was. It was Bobby Skilton for his eighth best and fairest in 1967. Yeah. So in eighth position, North Melbourne, they got seven wins, one draw, and. 10 losses, their percentage quite respectable hmm. 94.2 To help them wade through it at the moment we've got Captain Noel Teasdale Miss Birdie as a captain hmm. and coached by Keith McKenzie taking over from Alan Killigrew Yeah, so um, Killigrew moved to WA for family reasons and he took over coaching Subiaco um, and Keith McKenzie was a, a former North Melbourne player from the 1940s mm-hmm. Okay Reminding me of Pete Pettigrew. Keeping it in-house. Yeah, so debutants, we got Kaz. we got John Goodingham, Barry Pascoe, Michael Redenbach, Ken Hill, and a name you might be familiar with, Dennis Pagan. Um, some He's stadium North, news. Cool. Melbourne City Council installed a new concrete terrace for bigger crowds to watch games at Arden Street. So part of that new deal of them moving back. Um, round one, they took on the Demons. And look, North were courageous all day. Typified by Ian Thompson, who was absolutely ironed out by uh, Tazzy Johnson in the third quarter. And despite not moving for two minutes, he returned to the field of play shortly after uh, snapping a goal. Not so much with the concussion rule in 67, not, hey? Yeah, not so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have their first win until round five, which was uh, over the Lions. Mick Evans led the team with six goals and 31 disposals. 
Uh, they won by 31 points. Then Arthur Car Nicholas was best on ground in round six with a win over the Hawks. He had 28 possessions, kicked two goals to two. And then Karen Nicholas followed it up the week after. Uh, the Roos made it three in a row. They had a 13-point win over the Dogs. Uh, he kicked another three goals. Then in round eight, they played the Bombers in an, what I will call an enthralling contest. The Roos held a two-goal lead at halftime, and, they, and the second half became an absolute slog. Ian Thompson had led the way with five goals for the day, and scores were level late, and Ian Thompson's quick snap just missed the goals. The Bombers raced the ball out of the danger zone when the Ruse 19th man, Ian Payne, took a mark 60 metres out. Uh, the siren sounded, the crowd raced onto the ground and getting in his way to uh, an attempt to win the game. And then he took, he, he lined up his shot. His right foot, right foot kick sailed right for its target, but Ooh. ultimately dropped five metres short. The game ended. In oh, a no. Yeah, it doesn't help when there's uh, supporters and horses and things on the ground. No, I can't, ima can't imagine that sort of, yeah. They didn't get in the head. A horse on the field might sort of really put you off your game, I reckon. Yeah, and the more I see footage from, like, the 60s and 70s, the, the more horses there, like, as soon as the game's over, the horse is straight onto the ground. Really? Yeah, like police horse. Straight on, yeah, wow. Yeah, Maybe Jeez, that's, not great for the, that's not great for the turf. No, I can imagine the ground chopping it up. The groundskeeper would not be happy. New no. big Clydesdale hoods just <laughs> chomping everything up. Yeah. Big um, round 10, they took on the Swans, and between them, Barry Goodingham and Mick Dowdle kicked nine goals. Laurie Dwyer had a lazy 39 disposals in a 16-point win. In round 14, they took on the top of the ladder, Blues, and despite holding the barest of margins at half time and three-quarter time, the Blues couldn't break away from the Kangaroos, who saved their best form for the last term. Uh, John Nichols was unable to counter North Beanpole Ruckman Barry Goodingham. And the Kangaroos' Gary Farrant, playing in his first year in the VFL, did particularly well on the halfback flank. Really? So Barry Goodingham in his first year is, is matched up with Johnny Nichols. That's very impressive. He mm. um, he sounds like a Tim English type, like when they – like a Beanpole. I was just thinking that. Yeah, yeah okay. It just has the, has the nouse around the ball a bit. Yeah. Mm. Probably nice. some protection around the ball as well by these, uh, his half yeah. teammates. Round 17 was another win over the Hawks. Gary Farron kicking 4-4 and Laurie Dwyer having another high possession game. And then last round, um, in round 18, they had a win. A two-goal to none last quarter saw them get over the top of the dogs. Daryl O'Brien best on ground. Tom Allison kicked the winning goal late in the game with almost the last kick. So finishing on a high. Nice. Very nice. Hmm. Um, who do you reckon kicked the most goals for North this year? Karen Nicholas? No, he was second. Not bad. It was hmm. Gary Farrant, okay. 26. And who hmm. do you reckon won the Sid Barker medal this year? Laurie Dwyer. It was good pickup, Laurie Dwyer. If picking up early, that's um, six years since he won his first. With fences probably around their ground. Melbourne with... Uh, eight wins and ten losses, and their percentage was only eighty-eight point eight percent. Very un-Melbourne-like. So, in nineteen sixty-seven, Melbourne were captained by Hasserman as his third year in charge after taking over from Barras in sixty-five, and coached for the final year by the great man Norm Smith. All right, so um, some interesting debutants as well. We've got John Toll and Big Maxi Walker. 
Hey, yes. Yes, okay. Cricketer. Uh, so round one, the Demons got off the, got the season off on a winning start, but uh, unconvincing with a victory over North Melbourne we just talked about. They trailed by 16 at three-quarter time, but Tassie Johnson Johnson was switched in onto brilliant North Melbourne forward Bernie McCarthy in the last quarter, and Bernie Massey came off the reserves bench to fill the gap left by Johnson. It was a masterstroke as North added just two more points to their total for the rest of the day, and the Ds got home by five points. Then in, <laughs> then in round three, the Demons inflicted the reigning Premier's St Kilda's first defeat of the season. Um, it started with Norm Smith giving one of the old-fashioned fire and brimstone addresses before the match. Um, but Brian Dixon is the interesting story of this day because the state election was being held on the same day and he was a member for St Kilda. Um, so he was simultaneously trying to be re-elected and beat the Saints. <laughs> and didn't, that, didn't he get um, elected for the first time on a game against the Saints as well? Yeah, Maybe. Um, so he started the day at the polling booths, rushed to the football to help Melbourne over the line, and then he rushed back to celebrate being re-elected to Parliament. I'll tell you what, what an absolute renaissance man <laughs> Big Dicko is. He's unbelievable. So in a tight match, Melbourne opened up a lead of just under three goals at the last change, but when Carl Ditterich kicked the first two of the final term, it looked like the, uh, the home side would steamroll to victory. But the Demons dug deep and played in an 18 minutes of defensive football, holding the margin under a goal, these by two. Ah. <laughs> in round six, Hassaman almost single-handedly beat the Lions. Uh, they only kicked two goals in the first half. Dees won by seven. Hassaman kicked five goals too and had just a lazy 31 disposals. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, round nine, they took on South Melbourne at the MCG. The game was ebbing and flowing and uh, entering time on in the third quarter. The Demons were 10 points behind South. But four quick goals gave them a 15-point breather at the last change. Um, and after that, they were never really headed. Hassaman kicked seven. Unbelievable. Um, round 12 was another thriller against North Melbourne. The Roos stormed home in the last quarter and were still in front in the last minute. With time running out, North Melbourne kicked out from the boundary, from the back line. Uh, Peter Stewart missed the target and the ball landed with a Melbourne player who booted it back towards the goal mouth. Hassaman, who'd been held scoreless all day by Daryl O'Brien, snuck off O'Brien and kicked the goal. Uh, Then from the ensuing centre bounce, North Melbourne went forward and Noel Teasdale took a mark 60 metres out. He kicked after the siren, but the shot landed 15 metres short of the goal. Melbourne won by three points. And this was officially Norm Smith's last win as Melbourne coach. End of an era. Mm. End of an era. Uh, in round 15, yes. the Ds were down by eight points and walking down the race to the change room uh, with John Beckwith. Norm, Norm Smith clutched his chest, saying he had a pain in his heart, and he asked Beckwith to take over for the rest of the game. Um, he was laid up in hospital for two weeks, and he handed the rest of the season's coaching to John Beckwith, the doctors advising him to step away from coaching football. So round 15, which was against... Uh, Carlton, so against Ron Barassi's Carlton was officially his last game in charge. Um, in red, in the book, Charlie, did you say anything, any anecdotes from that time? Oh, gosh, you're testing me, Kaz. I haven't read that in a while. But no, I can't, not that I can think of. Not in the, no, not, no, definitely not in the last hurrah. But... No, and, they... and having, having re- been reading this book currently, Kaz, it, it talks about how Len Smith had died of a heart attack not like, not more than two weeks ago. 
Um, yeah. He was very conscious of his heart and his family's heart condition. And his health, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so he, I think by this stage, he'd kind of re- come to the realisation that this was probably it for him anyway. Um, yeah, so, he, he, there's a bit of a gap, isn't there, between now and when he goes to South? Yeah, a few, few seasons. Yeah. Um, so yeah. John Beckwith coached the last few games. Uh, he won the round 16 match over the Doggies by three points. And then in a dead rubber against the Dons, Chris Aitken was Melbourne's best with five goals as the Demons snuck home by two points. So the D's winning quite a few uh, close ones. Yeah. And then on September 12, Norm Smith officially resigned as coach of Melbourne. He said he had no regrets and he said, I've been labelled an iron-willed disciplinarian. I don't wear that badge proudly. I prefer people to think of me as a person who believed in teamwork and the support of your fellow man and put it into practice. I believe that most of the players I coach think of me with respect and not as a tyrant. I like to think that. And mm. it's interesting because you would, you reading, reading the Red Fox, re, listening to interviews with people who played under him, generally that is the consensus, that people didn't, didn't view him as a tyrant, that they viewed him as a, as a hard, hard-willed and you did, what, you did what you were told. And, you know, he had a system, but he also knew how to get the best out of everyone. Like, he, he wasn't just a, yeah, a dictator or a tyrant, I guess. Would you agree, Timmy? Would, is, that, is that your reading yeah, of it? I mean, I think that's how we think of all those hard coaches. Like, we talk about Jock McHale as well, and they're all in the similar vein where they're demanding and they're ruthless in their pursuit of success. Yeah. And I think Alistair Clarkson's the same. Like, the players love him. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Have the utmost respect for them. Yeah, they're nowhere. And they all, but they, they also, I mean, with Norm, I mean, he was really big on creating a community outside, off the field as well, and having these dinners and dances and sing alongs and making sure that the team came together off the field also. Yeah. So, camaraderie. I think there's, there's definitely a lot to be, to be said for that also. So, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, now I've got one last little note here for the Melbourne section, and that's the yes. death of a player called Fred Blackman. So Blackman was the—he's the last player left alive from the from round one, eighteen ninety-seven. Okay, you're kidding. So he was the last player who was left alive. He played in the very first round of the VFL. Yeah, he played only two games for the D's. Both of them wins, uh, but he's the last of them to die. So. He said at this at this stage he'd seen every single Melbourne Premiership. That's phenomenal. That's unbelievable. Mm, I thought that was an interesting. Look, now, I might be wrong because I had to meticulously go through records, and some of them are unknown. Um, yep. you know, yeah. If if anyone does know if that's true, if there's if there's another player who lived longer, I'd like to hear about it. But yeah, Fred Blackman. So you got to think. Eight, yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's actually like it sounds really long, but sixty-seven. To ninety-seven, so you got seventy years, and you think you know, a guy's got to be at least fifteen, sixteen to be playing. Mm. The late nineties, yeah. So eighty-six. Oh yeah, eighty-six years old actually isn't like it's 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 a good innings, but it's not ridiculous, is it? So that's, I mean, I guess in the sixties to be born in the eighteen hundreds and live to your late eighties is pretty bloody good. Yeah, yeah. So that oh that's fascinating, Fred Blackman. Mm. Oh Blackman, I wonder what sorry. he would have said about how the game sorry. changed. Fred Blackham, B L A C K. Blackham, sorry, sorry. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow, 
Amazing, Timmy. That's a yeah. that's a great stat. I like that yeah. a lot. All I can think at the moment in like 67, I was thinking this last year as well, is, is like how would the Melbourne supporters be feeling at this stage when they've just been through this unbelievably successful period? They'd still be thinking, they'd surely be thinking that it can't be that far, the next one can't be that far away, right? It's just, someone- oh, we've just got, to re- <laughs> just got to reset, you know, rebuild and we'll be back up the top. Someone, someone called them and said, "You're not going to win another premiership until nine, until fifty-seven years later, and you yeah. win that premiership in Perth." Yeah, you wouldn't believe it. No, <laughs> but it's great. It's great. Like there'd still be so. I mean, I know the the three years since it have been not great, but there'd still be so much positivity around the club, wouldn't there? Yeah. Surely. You haven't told me who you thought won uh, the Bluey Truscott Award. Brian Dixon. No, it was uh, the captain has a man winning his third, and surely he got he got won the goal kicking too. It, he did with thirty eight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the mighty Dons Essendon with eight wins, one draw, and nine losses, and a percentage of one hundred and six, well above Melbourne there. So in. In 67, again coached by uh, Johnny Coleman, captained by Ken Fraser, again for for the third year. Yep. Some debutantes, we've got Bob Greenwood, Wally Buhage, and a name we probably all know quite well, Ken Fletcher. Kaz. Here we go, Ken Fletcher. Um, Although lightly built... He broke in Essendon's side as a fullback after coming from Essendon High School. His great <laughs> skills and pace saw him used virtually everywhere on the ground during his long career. Jeez, who does that sound like? <laughs> All of those things. Pre-season, John Coleman was suffering from thrombosis and would be bedridden. And this affliction would follow him for the rest of the season and greatly affect his coaching. The Dons also had a really tough draw. They drew the top five sides of 66 in the opening five rounds. And they started poorly, very, very poorly. Sorry, they lost round one to Richmond, a resurgent Richmond. Then round two, they lost to Collingwood by 22 points, in which Jeff Cryer broke his tibia. Supposedly, after this match, John Coleman handed umpire Jeff Crouch a rule book and said, you better have, you better have this, I can't follow it. <laughs> I love it. The fallout from this poor start saw premiership players Jack Clark and Hugh Mitchell dumped from the side and effectively told to end their careers in the reserves. Oh, uh, wow. Hugh Mitchell didn't want to, so he, he hand, handed in his, reserva- his resignation and uh, I think he got transferred. And Jack Clark played a few um, and then was, was more gracious and actually ended up helping coach some of the reserves. But, yeah. An interesting changing of the guards here. So they had five losses in a row and officially the worst start to a season ever they've had. Wow. In the VFL. Um, round six, they finally broke through for a win. They got off to a flyer with the win, holding the Dogs scoreless. In fact, the only goals the Dogs scored all game all came in the second quarter, which was four, as the Bombers romped to an eight-goal victory. Round seven, the Bombers had a 26-point win over the Demons. New player Bob Greenwood in just his fourth game was suspended for four matches for striking Norm Smith's son, Peter. Mm. Round nine, probably the highlight for the Dons, winning by 91 points against the Hawks at Windy Hill. Seven and eight goals in the middle two quarters, asserting their dominance. Ted Fordham kicked eight goals three. Round 12, they're starting to hit their stride a bit. They beat an in-form Richmond at Windy Hill by 24 points. John Burt with 44 
Um, sorry, four, four goals, four and 35 disposals was best on ground. In round 14, they overcame a two-goal halftime deficit to beat the Magpies at Victoria Park, again led by John Burt. Round 15, Alan Noonan was best on ground with seven goals as the Bombers beat the Swans. In round 17, the Bombers came out against the Doggies and were on fire. They kicked five goals, seven to one behind in the first quarter. But led by Witten, uh, the Dogs came back and spent the rest of the game playing catch-up. Dogs Rover George Bissett had the chance to win the game for them at the very end, but he missed a shot, and the Bombers held on to win by two points, luckily. In round 18, the dead rubber against the Demons. The Bombers had a chance to win the game in the last minute when Jeff Gosper kicked towards an open goal. His shot rolled left of the post through, though, and the match was lost. And then in September, John Coleman officially told the Essendon board he would not be reapplying for the coaching position. Um, so he would bow out, finishing with 90 wins from 133 games, winning percentage of 67.67. Uh, he's got two premierships on top of that as well. That's very that's so. Why is he bowing out? He's just his health. His health, yeah, and he's just uh, yeah, done with done with yelling at umpires, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So Ted Fordham's got to have led the uh, goal kicking this season, Charlie. Who did? Sorry, say that again. Ted Teddy Fordham. He wasn't. He was second. It was Alan Noonan with oh. forty goals. Okay. Yeah, Ted Fordham kicked twenty five, and who won the Crichton Medal, Timmy? Um. John Burt? It was John Burt taking out his third Crichton. Perhaps with a better start this season than Essendon. St Kilda in fifth place with 11 wins and seven losses. Their percentage, 122.7. So 67. You've been pretty confident coming into this season as a Saints man, captained again by Daryl Baldock and Coach again, of course, by Alan Jeans. They're not changing anything after 66, are they? No, but what generally happens at St Kilda, Charlie? What do we talk about? Uh, they screw something up. The St Kilda they does. just sprinkle it away. Um, what happened in the What happened in the off season, Jim? How did they ruin it for themselves before they even had a chance? Well, actually, it was it was more fate than themselves. Um, Ian oh, Stewart okay. Ian Stewart was in a car accident, and he uh. missed three games. And Carl Ditterich was called up for national service. Luckily, based in Victoria, but he only managed that among that. Com, sorry, that and suspension meant he only played twelve games. So yeah, even even the universe has it in for St Kilda when they don't screw it up for themselves. The universe does it for them. Yeah, and they're they're okay. <laughs> they got their premiership, so they're you know that's it. They've ended the drought. Yeah. Um, some debutants for St Kilda. We got Jeff Kayser, John Bonney, Derek King, and Stuart Trot. Now, let me tell you, round one was a grand day at Moorabbin Oval. Uh, Mrs. June oh. Huggins unfurled the premiership flag in front of 29,000 people. And the Saints then went on to win in emphatic fashion. Although... Hang on, they won? They won. They couldn't, score a goal in the first, they couldn't score a goal in the first quarter. They kicked eight in the second and nine in the last to run away by 81 points. Uh, Doc Baldock leading the way with six goals, one on top of his 26 disposals. They then won a corker at Windy Hill against Essendon by three points. Cowboy Neal uh, kicked an incredibly accurate five goals straight in this game. Round two. Couldn't miss. Um, round three, Carl Ditterich did all he could to try and drag St Kilda over the line against Melbourne, but they fell three points short. Um, then Mr. Magic, Daryl Baldock and Kevin Roberts kicked four goals each to lead the Saints to a good win over the Hawks at Glenferry Oval. 
Ian Stewart making a successful return from injury with 25 disposals. Then following that, there was a controversial game against Carlton and the Saints were effectively robbed of a win. There's some more St Kilda dust because at halftime, their own siren failed to ring. In in that time, the Blues kicked the goal. Guess how much the Saints lost by? Uh, Five points. Five points. (laughs) Of course they did. (laughs) Um, Further losses to South and Collingwood severely dented their chances of defending their premiership. Um, So Alan Jeans called a council of war in the St Kilda rooms in the lead-up to the Geelong game. They were inspired by Ross Smith's 32 disposals and Daryl Baldock who in this game received a big bump and had seven stitches put in his eye. Yes. They touched up the Cats by 52 points. Doc balled up with five goals. This win got them back in form, but they'd spend the rest of the season just out of reach of the top four. Round 11, in a win over the Lions, Alan Jeans, uh, he took a, took a page out of John Coleman's book. He was reported by the boundary umpire for misconduct after allegedly calling Ray Sleeth an incompetent mug Kyle <laughs> Ditterich twice in the last quarter. The VFL executive cleared jeans the week later, but Ditterich was suspended for two games. Well, I mean, it sounds like Ditterich has a fair, like a fair rap sheet. It's, I don't reckon they were being unfair on him generally, were they? No. <laughs> um, then what have we got? Round thirteen, so the Saints trailed the Bombers by twenty-three at half time before they flicked the switch. Cowboy Neal, in an amazing show of form, kicked six goals straight himself in the third quarter to lead the Saints to an eventual 23-point win. And you finish. That is unbelievable. Six goals in a quarter from one guy. Yep. He finished with eight straight for the game. Yes. (laughs) In round 14, the Saints got the win over the Demons, but Bullock injured his knee and would miss the rest of the season. Then late season losses to Carlton and Richmond ended their finals hopes. Their only consolation was a big win over Collingwood in the final round. Ross Smith leading the way with 32 disposals. Um, and Charlie got some sad news for you as well. Go on. The big big silo passed away at the age of 80 in 1960. No, I thought he was still. I thought he was just still alive in 2021. <laughs> you can't kill the big silo. What do yeah, you? Well, at least at least he got to see a flag. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, big day. Wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and um, one, so good hearing one little bit of news, actually, I should have said this in the 66 episode. My dad's a big St Kilda fan, so he wanted, wanted, wanted our listeners to know that he was dancing around his backyard in 1966 when the Saints won. But also Love I found it. out, I knew my, my uncle played for St Kilda's under-19s, but I actually I didn't realise he was the captain of the under-19s in this era. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah, so I, really should, I, I should talk to him about that. Yeah, for sure. And you, well, he would have known all these guys, surely. Yeah, surely. So interesting. But, you know, you'd think without, as you said, with Bitterich only playing 12 games and then Doc going down for the last, what, five games of the season. Yeah. Pretty hard, pretty hard to, to win a flag when, you, when you're missing two of your most important players. Although, as uh, as Moz will tell us, players do step up. Yes, they certainly do. They certainly do. So, uh, who do you reckon led the goal kicking? Uh, Cowboy Neil. Cowboy Neil, shoot him up, Cowboy. Kick thirty-seven. And surely Ross Smith, uh, Brownlow, uh, Brownlow winner, taking home the best and fairest. 
Ross Smith definitely took took home the best and fairest. He also came second in their goal kicking. He was twenty. He kicked twenty four goals. Yeah. So yeah, as you just said, very much stepped into the space that uh, Doc left. And and Ian Stewart early on as well. Yeah. Yeah. God. All right, Charlie. That brings us to the end of the uh, end of the non finalists. So tell us about the night series. Give us some night fever. That's right. Let's talk about the finals for the non finalists. This night series again. So. Here we go. Uh, starting on the 31st of August, we had South Melbourne beating Fitzroy, uh, Essendon beating Hawthorne, Footscray beating St Kilda. Which was, I mean, that's North huge because, sorry, just go back to that for a sec, because yes. Footscray finished last. St Kilda yes. just missed out on finals. Yeah, last year's premiers. It, it was a one point game in the end. Yeah. Uh, St Kilda kicked themselves out of it. 8 15 63 to Footscray's 9 10 64. But yeah, massive. You're absolutely right. So the Wooden Spooners versus the previous year's Premiers, and they've got it done. Yeah. And then North Melbourne, unfortunately, beating Melbourne as well. So taking us to the semis, then we've got South Melbourne versus Essendon, and South Melbourne uh, picked them at the post there. Essendon were leading for most of the game. Um, Footscray, in a bit of an arm wrestle, beat North Melbourne there, uh, which t- then takes us to the grand final between South Melbourne and Footscray, and would you believe it, Footscray have come out absolutely smashing South. South couldn't get a score on the board in the first quarter, and Footscray won- run out winners 15-11, 101-8-8-56. So oh, I've Spooners yeah, taking I mean, out the trophy. i got to say, this is this is very similar to the 2016 fairy tale run the Doggies had. Yes. To get to the finals. To beat who in that grand final? To beat South. Yeah, Sydney. And in 2016, Sydney, yeah. It's all it's all matching up. It's all it's all coming together. Very interesting that, isn't it? Alright, so that takes us to the top four. Making it to fourth place, Collingwood with twelve wins, six losses, and a whopping percentage of 132.2. Their wins one more than St Kilda. Yes, so sneaking into finals there, uh, captained again by Des Tudnam and coached again by Bobby Rose. So, yes, yes, just just continuing that trajectory upwards, the Pies. One of the debutants was uh, Ross Twiggy Dunn, a great nickname there. Um, round one, they had a hard-fought game against the Cats, which ended in, with a controversial loss. We'll talk more about this when we get to Geelong. So round two at Victoria Park, they won their first game of the season. Peter McKenna's seven goals holding the Pies to a 63-point win. Yeah. Peter McKenna's seven goals helping the Pies to a 63-point win. Colin Tully was on fire with 32 disposals. They had wins over Essendon by 22 points and then ran over the Bulldogs in the last quarter at Western Oval to win by 58 points. Then in round five, Len Thompson led the team from the ruck to a big win over South Melbourne. A fighting loss to Carlton was followed by revenge against St Kilda beating them in the grand final replay by three goals. Peter McKenna, very inaccurate, however, with three goals, seven. Round eight, they took on a white-hot Tigers team who were having a great start to the season. A four-goal-to-two third quarter proved to be the difference between the two teams and the Pies won by seven points. Barry Price and Shane Whelan kicking four each. Um, Here's one for you, Charlie. Victoria Park in round nine, battle of the uh, traditional rivals, Fitzroy and Collingwood. But the Lions got absolutely destroyed by 101 points. Goal kickers included Len Thompson with 5-7, Shane Whelan with five goals, one. Um, they didn't allow the Lions to score a goal at all in the first half. 
and this would end up being their greatest ever win against the old uh, the old enemy. The only time they ever beat the Lions by over hundred. Wow, yeah the the um the old rivalry is sort of dying now, isn't it? We've got one club who's continued to stay strong, and the other who's really unfortunately falling apart there. Well, yeah, plus I think the rivalry between Melbourne and Collingwood's overtaken that in that time. Yes, in this time, in this generation, absolutely. Then solid wins over Hawthorne and Melbourne had them two points away from top spot on the ladder at round 11. Then as uh, rains finally appeared in the skies around Victoria after a dry dry year, the Magpies started to falter. Very, very dry year, this. Very dry year. They lost at home to the Cats and the Bombers while the Dogs beat them at, by goal at Western Oval. They did manage to beat North, but this was only after this, this was their only win in four rounds. But they righted the ship in round 16. Uh, McKenna helped themselves to eight goals, two in a 74-point win over the Swans. They beat ladder-leading Carlton in round 17 before a last-round slip-up against St Kilda. But it's finals again for Collingwood. There we go. So who, who do you reckon uh, kicked the most goals for the Pies this year, Timmy? McKenna. It was P. McKenna with 47 goals, 33 behinds. Yeah. And... Uh, who won the Copeland? Let's say Terry Waters. No, you mentioned him before. It was Len Thompson winning his first uh, Copeland trophy this year. First of five that he oh, goes God. on to win. Yeah, very go. impressive. Nice. All right. Third place, Geelong with 13 wins, five losses, and percentage of a paltry 122.8. Yes, so uh, coached by Premier's ex-premiership star Peter Pianto in his second year in charge and uh, captained by Polly Farmer for the third and final year. Absolutely. Um, so some debutantes, we've got Barry Primer, Ian Nankervis, uh, John Scarlett, who is Matthew Scarlett's dad, Jeff Ainsworth and Chris Mitchell. Nankervis, any relation to uh, Richmond? I don't think so, but Kaz, can you tell us a bit more about Ian Nankervis? Ian Nankervis, a fine player who excelled in a two-phase career, firstly as a rover and then as a back pocket. In this first year, uh, he was number two rover to Billy Goggin, who was regarded as one of the best recruits of 1969. The stamina and anticipation he had utilised as a rover were assets in defence, and he started Geelong's engine with... uh, his willingness to move downfield and distribute the ball in a manner that predated the running back pocket style of later years. Great. Okay, so I mentioned this game earlier, Charlie. Uh, they played Collingwood in round one, and it was a really controversial, tight game. So in this game, the lead changed 12 times. Geelong yes. was trailing by five points when the final siren sounded. This happened just after centre half forward Bill Ryan had been awarded a mark in the pretty much in the goal square. Spectators began to fill onto the field as Ryan had his shot for goal, but his kick was poor and went through for a point. Collingwood supporters were jubilant. Hooray, hooray, they shouted. However, the umpire blew his whistle, ruling that the Collingwood man on the mark um, had infringed. He'd, uh, he'd come too far forward and he would and the, uh, the Geelong man... Bill Ryan no. shot a goal. He hasn't heard it. He's touched on the mark. The ball was touched on the mark. But Lance Perkins hasn't heard the siren. 
going on here? It's going to be a penalty kick. It's going to be a penalty. It's another kick, Jack. Oh my gosh. It's almost Jimmy Steins esque. I know. So a mounted policeman had to clear the way to allow Ryan to have his second kick. Bill Ryan's coming in. Ryan's kicked the goal. It's a lot of fun. What a fantastic game. Heavens above, it's the most amazing game I've ever seen in my life. Pandemonium broke. He slammed the ball through for a goal to give Colin, to give Geelong a one point win. That is massive. Yeah, Sam Newman best on ground in this as well with 21 disposals and 21 hitouts. And there is footage of this as well. You can watch this final moments. Oh, that is unbelievable. Hmm. Imagine the umpire. Jeez, you'd want, you'd want those cops on horses getting you off the field pretty quickly after that game, I reckon. Well, it was in Geelong, so I think you'd be all right. If it was Victoria Park, yeah, then you'd have an issue. That's, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> Sammy Newman was best on ground in round two over the Demons. He had 32 disposals, 22 hitouts, and 15 marks to lead the Cats to a dominant 33-point win. Unbelievable. Round four was a day out for Doug Wade. His nine goals against the Lion was his best haul of his career. Best haul of his career so far. Oh. Round five, the Cats won at Windy Hill for the first time since 1954, trailing by three points at three-quarter time. They won by 11, Doug Wade kicking four quiet day for him. Round six um, was a 19-point win over South Melbourne, which saw Tony Polinelli take mark of the day. Uh, in the second half, he managed to get one hand to the punt kick at high speed and then juggle the ball for about 25 metres, with the ball popping up all over his shoulders and through his arms. And once he finally had control of the ball, the, everyone applauded, even the umpire. <laughs> I love it. Six games were wins over Melbourne, Fitzroy, Essendon South, and losses to Richmond and Hawthorne. Um, but this saw Polly Farmer appear in the best players and getting best on ground in three of those games. Round 14 is another funny story. Uh, saw a loss to the Hawks in the mud at Glen Ferry Oval. At halftime, Coach Peter Pianto told the team, don't come back unless you've won. Don't, you're not allowed back in the rooms. So it was a wet day. Early in the fourth quarter, Bob Keddie put the Hawks six goals up. He kicked the ball, though, through the goals and it landed in the pools next door. Oh, yeah. Like, the Cats were like, right, let's get a new, a nice new dry ball, um, and which will help because obviously you can kick a dry ball quicker and further. And the Hawks were like, no, 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 we don't know this. So um, John Kennedy sent a runner next door to fish the ball out of the pool. Um, in the meantime, a dry ball was being used. The play hadn't stopped. The Cats kicked the goal pretty quickly with the dry ball, but the wet ball was reclaimed. The runner ran down to, the, to play and gave him the wet ball, and they continued using the, uh, the wet ball for the rest of the game. You're kidding. So we're not we're not just talking a wet ball from play. It's been in a pool. Yep. Or was in the pool's area. It was in a yeah, in a pool. Yeah, yeah. Um Hawks won by three points. Unbelievable. Oh. Some people will go to to win. And also, I can't believe the umpires weren't like, no, it's gone. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, using a new ball. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Round 16, they kept the Bombers to four goals 10, which was their worst score in 12 years. It pains me to say that. <laughs> uh, round 17, Wayne Kloster had a day out for the Cats against a Skilton-less South Melbourne. However, Doug Wade was the star of this day. He had a wonderful day out, kicking 13 goals seven and 21 kicks. He had 13 marks, uh, played on three different opponents. At one stage, he kicked six goals in, 20, in a 20-minute burst. But his 13th proved to be the most elusive, and it took him three attempts to kick it. Uh, and this saw him break a long-standing Cats record, which was uh, George Maloney's from 1930. Yeah, 13, yeah, 13 with seven points as well. Geez, he would have uh, 
after kicking six in 20 minutes, he would have thought he was on track to break Fred Fanning's record, you would have thought. Absolutely. So um, the Cats had a last round loss to Richmond in a bit of a preview for what the coming weeks would hold. Yes. So uh, lead goal kicker for the Cats this year. Oh, Dougie, Dougie Wade, come on. It was with 96. Uh, and the winner of the Kanji Greaves. Billy Goggin? It was Billy Goggin. Well done. In second place, runners-up Carlton with 14 wins, one draw and three losses. A percentage of a mediocre 125.8. Captain coached, of course, by the great man, Ronald Dale Barassi, this year. And he's, uh, what, third year in charge now after coming across from the deeps. Yeah, and starting, I mean, this, and, and finishing second is him really starting to reap some reward from, you know, the effort he's putting in. Absolutely, yeah. Um, got some huge debutants as well for the uh, the Blues that Kaz can tell us about. Uh, Alex Jezelenko and Robert Walls. Oh, huge names. Alex Jezelenko, you beauty. 256 games, 424 goals. Jezza was a footballing genius. His handballing wizardry, cat-like balance, and spectacular marking thrilled crowds for one and a half decades. Born of a Ukrainian father and a Russian mother in Salzburg, Austria, uh, he could have turned his skill to any sport, any ball sport. When he was four, his parents immigrated to Australia, yet he was drawn to soccer, then more drawn to soccer than rugby as a youngster. He did not play Australian rules until the age of 14 and then ran down the field eluding opponents and kicking a goal before he was informed that he needed to bounce the ball. <laughs> As a teenager, he chauffeured um, visiting um, Geelong stars Polly Farmer and Alistair Lloyd around Canberra and uh, told them that one day he would make VFL football and that he did. Alex Jezelenko, we're going to hear more about you soon. Robert Walls from Carlton and Fitzroy. Carlton's assessment of Walls' ability was shown when he was given a senior game at the age of 16 while still a student at Coburg High after originally playing for Coburg, Coburg Amateurs. In the early stages of his career, he was used in defence but became one of the game's best centre-half forwards. Tall, with long arms, he was a fine mark but also creative flipping the ball out to teammates. Oh, just tantalising. Right, round one, the Blues played at Prince's Park as the away team, taking on their new co-tenant Fitzroy. And they started very well, holding the line scoreless before pummeling them. They won by 94 points. Jezelenko debuted well with 15 disposals. Round two, it was back to Prince's Park, but this time as the home team. And they took on the Hawks, which was Peter Hudson's debut. And he drew quite a big crowd to the ground. Um, however, Wes Lofts of Carlton played really well on him and, and kind of blanketed him for most of the day. The Blues overcame a slow start to win by 44 points. Round three, John Nichols and Sergio Salvani combined well for the Blues as they defeated North Melbourne by 16 points. Barassi, Jezelenko and Robert Walls all kicking two each. Round four, the Blues would trounce the Demons by 59 points. Alex Jezelenko was great. Um, really proving his worth here with 14 kicks, six handballs, four marks, three goals, and one. Yeah, point. wow. Okay. So and the next five matches would be decided by less than a goal. The Blues winning in round five, six, and eight, and drawing in round seven, and then losing in round nine. 
So the first of those round five was a controversial clash against the Kilda at Moorabbin. Carlton got home by five points, but this was after, we, when we spoke about this earlier, the siren failed sound, sound at half time when, and when play continued for five, for an extra 20 seconds, um, Barry Gill scored a goal. And obviously we talked about St Kilda losing by five points or Carlton winning by five points. Oh, okay. In round six, Jezza kicked four as the Blues beat the Pies by a goal. Round seven, Carlton went into the match against South Melbourne at the Lakeside Oval unbeaten and full of confidence. And sure enough, after playing some brilliant football and patches, the Blues were five goals up at halftime and well in control. However, Charlie, Unbelievable. during the long break, the Swans reorganised their side and led by their champion captain, Bob Skilton. They came out for the second half playing cohesive, direct football. At three-quarter time, the difference had shrunk to just 12 points, with Carlton under intense pressure. South actually hit the front in the last few minutes as well, before Blues rover Terry Broad took two set shots at goal in quick succession. He missed both, but levelled the scores, and in a just result for both teams, yeah. it was a draw. Yeah, so there we both go. Both teams were even. Round eight, the match promised much so. We've got a match here between Carlton and Geelong, and we know that means a matchup between Polly Farmer and John Nichols. The home team got out to a match-winning lead of 23 points at the 18-minute mark of the late last term. The Cats never gave up, though. They slammed on three quick goals, and, gave, and the game was really anyone's. Uh, with minutes left, the Cats made another attack, but the Blues' defence held them out. And Carlton ran out four-point winners. In round nine, they lost to the Tigers by two points. Uh, and I'll talk a bit more about that when I get to the Tigers, because that was a pretty controversial game as well. Round okay. 10, Carlton played six teenagers in an easy 16-point win over the Dogs. So a bit of depth coming He's blooding some young stars there. Yep. Round 11, the Blues were comfortably leading by 37 points early in the second quarter in this game against Essendon. And Carlton fans were shocked when umpire Jeff Crouch took the ball off stand-in fullback and former Brownlow medalist Golden Collis for wasting time. A goal resulted, and from that moment, Essendon was revitalised and got back into the game. So Collis had taken the mark. He went back to take his kick in the inner side of the ground, stopped, walked back again, and went to the other side of the ground again. Again, he hesitated and walked back to take his kick. And at this, ta- this point, uh, Crouch, the umpire, made a very brave call as an umpire and took the ball off and then gave it to Evans who took his kick from a few metres out and kicked the goal. Uh, you know, you can imagine Barras was pretty upset about this. Yeah, but but also fair enough, right? Like, yeah. there's rules in place for a reason. Jeez, it's amazing how quickly the tide of a game can turn on just one thing, right? It's, yep. So the Blues led by 20 points at the last break, but the Bombers had 90% of the play in the final term, and Barras was worried, so he stacked the back line at one stage. Um, with centre-half back, John Gill, the only Carlton player in their forward line. Uh, Essen was inaccurate and kicked three goals nine to the Blues, two goals four. The Blues held on but to win by nine points in a pretty substandard game, which was marred by several fiery incidents. <laughs> Round 12 was Carlton's 1,300th league game. It was a close one against their uh, co-tenants, the Lions, and despite a one-goal opening term, opening quarter, sorry, the Blues came back to beat the Lions by eight. Round 13, Brian Kekovic continued his good form for Carlton, kicking six goals as the Blues beat Hawthorne by 24 points. Now, round 15, the battle. this game was a battle of the back lines with Barry Gill playing a top game and was a stalwart in defence. The Blues' Brian Quirk had starred on the wing and was balanced by Melbourne's best-on-ground winger, Brian Dixon. In a tight last quarter, Ron Barassi again stalked up and down the back line, picking up numerous kicks and driving the ball into his attack. John Nichols dominated the ball ups and throw ins and provided his teammates with first use of the ball. Brian Kekovic was huge. He kicked four goals, missed a few easy other ones. 
Late in the final term, Melbourne's Hassan man ran into the forward line, unaware that he was on his own, and his hurried kick went through for a point. And the siren soon sounded, and the game was only won by four points. I probably made it sound there like Carlton was winning easily, but Melbourne had really put up a big fight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Hassan just had a bit more time. Yeah. Uh, round 16, the Blues won this game in the first quarter when at one stage they kicked five goals straight against St Kilda. Um, they had a 27-point buffer, and this was, you know, this was able to see off any challenge the Saints made. Um, twice the Saints came within five points, but um, the Blues were able to steady. Gordon Collis had the better of Ian Stewart in this, um, and he in, he in return at halftime. I'll edit that bit out. Um, now. Carlton had been on top all season from round one through to round 16. In yeah. round 17, they lost to Collingwood and fell to second for the first time all season. So, so the team who obviously finished on top were nipping at their heels the entire time. The whole, yeah, the was whole team, basically. Was it purely on percentage for, mo- for the most part or one game in it? Uh, one game. So that draw, oh, the, the percentage is pretty huge, actually. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, two, the two, two points, kind of. Yeah. So coming into the final oh, yeah. round, there was no chance of them falling down to third. Um, no. But the, you, know, you want a bit of confidence going to finals. They beat the Swans by 33 points. That's it. Yeah, it's a, it was the, it was the, uh, the minor premiership. Yeah. Who do you think was their league goal kicker? Jeselinko? It wasn't Jeselinko. Jeselinko was second with 34. Brian Kekovich with 38 oh, yes, was the lead goal kicker. And who won the John Nichols medal? Gordon Collis. It wasn't Gordon Collis. It was John Nichols. Surprise, surprise. For his fifth and final best and fairest. Finally in first place, Richmond with 15 wins, three losses, and a lovely percentage of 145.9 champions Richmond. Yes, yes. So, uh, captained this year by uh, Fred Swift, yep. taking over from Neville Crow uh, after a few years in, ta- in charge, and coached Tommy Hafey. Coached by Tommy Hafey, of course, in his second year in charge. Now, if uh, you think those uh, those Carlton de- debutants were big names, listen to these three. We got Royce. Oh, Hart, okay, bring it on. Royce Hart, Kevin Sheedy, and Francis Burke. <laughs> Wowzers. Okay. Guys, give us a quick description of those three, please. Hey, Royce Hart, settle in. We've got to get through these absolutely delicious anecdotes. Uh, 187 games, uh, 369 goals. Richmond brought him to Melbourne, 1965, 17-year-old, gangling tenderfoot for the price of a new suit, six shirts and a pair of shoes, plus 20 pounds spending money. The club had heard that he had done well for Clarence, this is under-19s, as a rover in the state schoolboys school team, an extensive gym program and a gradual introduction through the under-19s reserves resulted in him being introduced to league football in the opening round of 1967. He was thrust into the new role of full forward and starred. He had lightning recovery, uh, a great spring, vice-like hands, and was a penetrating left foot kick. His balance was also superb, but his greatest asset was total and unwavering concentration. Looking forward to hearing more about Royce Hart. Francis Burke, equal 300 games, 71 goals. One of Richmond's greatest players, Burke joined the Tigers from Nathalia 
and immediately made a name for himself as a champion winger. Superbly courageous. Burke was told as a 14-year-old that he would have to give up football because doctors detected a murmur in his heart. He initially wanted to play a couple of games so he would have credentials to coach Nathalia. Courage was his trademark. Kevin Sheedy. 251 games, 91 goals. One of the great names of the modern football era. Sheedy barracked Fessenden as a boy, but was residentially tied to Richmond. He played with VFA Club Paran and joined the Tigers without a clearance. It might have been a gamble for some players, but Sheedy always looked like making a name for himself at league level. Sheedy was a master of on-field psychology as a player, and he often riled opposition fans with his tactics. Yet throughout the football world, nobody was admired more for his integrity and straight approach. Ah, I agree. He was the total professional in his approach, but always remembered the lessons learned from his days growing up as one of one of a family of seven. Sheedy, a great football innovator, developed the backspin hand pass, and his sharp football mind made him a natural for coaching, of course, which we will hopefully hear more about soon. All right, so round, uh, on the walls of the Tiger Rooms pre-season, Tommy Heathy had the words, Tigers on victory we, victory we thrive, just eat them alive, painted up in the rooms. Interesting. Round one, Essendon had over 900 games of more experience than the Tigers players, but this didn't stop the Tigers uh, running riot. Bill Barrett went berserk, got kicks all over the ground. He kicked five as the Tigers won by 35 points. Royce Hart, Sparkled in his debut with 10 marks, although he kicked three goals, seven. 900 more games of experience. Yeah. That is incredible. Round three, the Tigers beat the Lions for the ninth time in a row. Kevin Bartlett on fire in the middle and Mick Irwin strong down back. In round four, they really should have buried the Kangaroos. The Tigers kicked 11 goals, 22. They had 15 more scoring shots and only won by 20 points. Really? Round five against the Hawks, Swooper Northey was in everything. KB kicked six for the day. Margin was only 24 at halftime, but the Tigers blew this out to win by 75 points and really starting to make people notice um, notice them as a, as a team. All right, round six. Here's a fun fact for you. They had a 41-point win over St Kilda, but this game would feature 13 players who would go on to at least coach one game of VFL, AFL football. Really? Um, round prior to the round seven match, Tiger player Michael Patterson was involved in a car accident. However, this didn't stop him from making his uh, his place taking his place in the team. <laughs> uh, Kevin Sheedy, Kevin Sheedy made a splash early in this game against the Cats uh, at Cadinia Park. He refused to shake hands with opponent Dennis Marshall, but Marshall did get the better of Sheeds. With scores tied at half time, Richmond booted eight goals to three. Sorry, Richmond booted eight goals three in the third quarter against Geelong. Greg Hobbs of the age called it the best quarter of football he'd ever seen. Richmond kicked seven goals in 13 minutes. Mike Perry played a blinder and Royce Hart marked everything. The Tigers go, went on to win by 38 points. Um, and in the rooms afterwards, supporters raised 135 bucks to donate to the players. Ah, oh, good on him, as you do. Now, round nine, this is, this is another pretty controversial match. Uh, Richmond coach Tommy Hathy went out to the umpires pre-game. They were playing against Carlton and said, what are you going to do if Barassi starts wasting time and arguing? Because he was prone to do that. 
and the umpires assured him, no, no, we'll, we'll, like, we'll, we'll penalise him and, and that's all right. So just kind of ruffled the feathers of Carlton and started a bit of bad blood, continued to build the bad blood between these two teams. Game was a thriller. Little separated them from the opening bounce. Um, but when Ian Robertson of Carlton burst through the pack and kicked a team lifting deep into time on goal in the last quarter, the Blues were up by four points and seemed sure to hang on. But from the resulting centre bounce, Richmond forced the ball forward to their star, Royce Hart, who swooped on the ball and got a desperate kick away just as he was tackled. His miraculous kick cleared a big pack of 20 metres of players 20 metres out from the Tigers' goal and bounced through to see the Tigers home by two points. So good. So good. Uh, in round 15, Royce Hart was targeted. So he's having such a good debut season. He was targeted against the Kangaroos. He kicked three goals in the first quarter. In the second quarter, he let out again and jug, uh, John Dugdale swung a vicious round arm and knocked him out cold. Hart, in his, uh, in his memoir, says, I can't remember much of the incident, but I kicked three goals in the first quarter. About five minutes into the second, I took a mark about 40 metres out. Next thing I know, I wake up in Epworth Hospital. <laughs> I guess won that by 20 points. God. In round 16, the Tigers had their biggest ever win against Hawthorne. They won by 114 points, kicking a massive 23 goals, 30, 168. Swooper Northey kicked 6-2, Royce Hart 5-7. 10 different players got 18 disposals or more in a very even team performance. Yeah, well, that's what it takes, doesn't it? To, to Like, you just can't have a superstar play well to win, to smash a team like that. It's got to be an absolute whitewash across the field. So that's interesting, yeah. With a round 17 win over secured by 32 points, they overtook Carlton on top of the ladder, um, which was the first time all season Carlton had been toppled and Richmond had been on top. Round 18, the Tigers started with nine goals to two in the opening quarter, but the Cats fought back valiantly to only go down by two goals. For the Tigers, Royce Hart kicked six, Billy Brown five and Norley three. Richmond finished the season on top of the ladder for the first time since 1944, their best win-loss record since 1934. Hey, they're getting it back. They're coming back up, the boys. So 1967, the winner of the Jack Dyer medal, who do you reckon it was? Young Matt Bill Barrett? No, Kevin Bartlett. Oh, Still. yeah, of course. Of course, I forgot yeah. he was there. And, and yeah, exactly. Royce Hart taking out the uh, the most goals, I'm sure. You would, you would imagine so, and you would be absolutely right with 55 goals. Swooper Northy just behind him with 49, and then KB just behind that. So you've got some... You got some firepower there, um, and that doesn't. It shouldn't surprise anyone to find that Richmond won the Coles Goals uh, Award for sixty-seven as well. Total of two hundred and sixty-one goals. Really? There you go. I'm, I actually was surprised. I thought Geelong might have had a had a crack at it with Big Dougie Wade, although they, he was obviously the only one doing it. Yeah, Geelong was second. They had two hundred and thirty-four goals. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Moz is here to tell us about the Brownlow Medal. The Brownlow Downlow with Moz. This year, St Kilda won their third Brownlow in a row. But no, it was not Ian Stewart who took the award this time, but their stocky, determined rover, Ross Smith. During his first six seasons, Smith polled a total of six votes. Then suddenly, in 1967, he finished with 24 votes. He was the clear winner as North Melbourne's Laurie Dwyer finished with 17 and Carlton's Alex Jezelenko received 15 votes. Smith attributes his success in 1967 to his fitness. 
He says his game revolved around fitness. He roved for 80 to 90% of each game and he was absolutely fearless. He had been a champion schoolboy player and was recruited from Hampton Rovers in 1961. It did take him a few years to find his peak, but by 1965-1966, he was showing off his non-stop style and collecting the ball from the bottom of packs. Smith listened to the Brownlow Count on the radio at the home of Alan Jeans and had dinner with Alan and his wife Mary. Before the voting had even finished, Ian Drake, the Secretary of St Kilda, arrived from Frankston ready to take Smith to the Channel 7 studios. That night there were many interviews and media photographs and then Smith celebrated the night at the social club in St Kilda. He says it was a very it was a real struggle a few days later to play the night game against Footscray on the Thursday night. Which gets us to finals. That's it, finals. It's finals time. So our very first semi-final was on the 2nd of September, uh, 2.30 p.m. in front of 91,715 people. And, uh, yeah, Geelong Geelong versus Collingwood. So, Timmy, what what was going on down there? All right, so very early in this game, Sam Newman was crunched when a Pies player landed in his back and he was replaced by Gareth Andrews. Um, The game was incredibly close for three quarters. It was four goals each in the first quarter, eight goals each at halftime, ten goals each three-quarter time. Um, and it had the Cats leading by one point at three-quarter time. Uh, with Geelong suffering injuries, so, sorry, at halftime with Geelong suffering from injuries, they waited until um, Dennis Marshall and Roy West were ready, ready to play. So they actually stayed in the rooms at halftime, waiting till those players were ready, leaving the fire yeah. out of the field getting cold, which I mean, it's good tactics as well. Um, but the heroics of those two players retaking the field eventually proved to be the inspiration the Cats needed. And although it took 10 minutes into the final quarter for the Dan Walls to break, Geelong ended up running away with this. Wade kicked four yeah. goals in the final quarter as the Cats ran out 30-point winners. Doug Wade finished with eight. Holly Farmer clearly best on ground with 25 disposals, 11 marks, 15 hitouts. Um, Des Tudnam was reported and suspended from this game for striking Geelong back pocket Jeff Ainsworth, who was given yes. matches. Um, and Sam Newman, it was discovered after the game he had suffered severe internal injuries. He was rushed to the hospital where he had part of his kidney removed. We, you know, which, yeah, which we remember he talked. He talked about when it happened to Tom Lonigan, didn't yeah. he? he? Sort of was like, yeah, this is very well, di- different incident, but very similar in terms of its its result. Yeah, very and very serious. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. So Collingwood just chipped straight out of finals. Uh, Geelong through to the through to the prelim. Uh, to see who were they were going to face off against. What would it be, Richmond or Carlton, the top, the latter leaders for the entire season? So the next week at two thirty on the 9th of September, in front of ninety nine thousand and fifty one people, Timmy, huge yeah. crowd. Um, and it was an absolute shootout from the very beginning. It was. So Richmond fielded a team with absolutely no finals experience, and I mean zero. Yeah, Carlton only really had Barassi and Nichols anyway, so it was a pretty you know. Pretty good game in terms of like in terms of experience, they played above themselves. Yeah. Um, but the Tigers knocked over the Blues by forty points in front of a, a big crowd. Um, Tiger forward Royce Hart proved too good for an unfit Wes Lofts and kicked six goals. Um, it was the first time all season that the Tigers 
so that a team had kicked 100 points against the Blues. But the massive talking point of this game was an incident that occurred between John Nichols and Neville Crowe. So it goes like this. During the third quarter, Richmond's Neville Crowe and John Nichols were wrestling for the ball when Nichols hit Crowe in the guts. Crowe stepped back with the football grasped to his chest in the left hand and attempted to slap Nichols with an open right hand. Crowe missed making any contact with Nichols by about three inches, but Nichols immediately lifted his own left hand to his face and pretended to have been badly affected. He reeled away from Crowe, and despite Crowe's protests, he was reported for striking. So at the tribunal, the following scene played out. So Neville Crowe said, After I struggled to my feet, the Carlton player continued to hold me and I made a forward move with my right hand. It was not a clenched fist and very little, if any contact was made. If there was any contact at all, it was very slight. It was not my intention to strike Nichols. Uh, Crowe then stated that he could not physically clench his fist at any rate due to an injury with his little finger in his right hand that required the wearing of a plaster cast during matches. So, and then uh, Fitzgerald said, I was only 10 yards away. Nichols fell to the ground holding his face. Players advocate Bill Timms says, why would you say the, fir- the fist was clenched? And then Fitzgerald replies, because I saw it clenched. It was delivered with force, sufficient force to make Nichols drop to his knees. And then umpire Shields says, I did not see the incident. Uh, Crow was manhandled after he took a mark and players rushed in. I awarded the 15-yard penalty, and as I walked to the 15-yard mark, I heard a bit of a roar. I looked around and saw players coming in again. When I sorted things out, I found boundary umpire Fitzgerald had reported Crow. And then we have Johnny Nichols saying, I don't remember the incident very clearly at all. From what I remember, I think there was a scramble and a free kick or mark was given. I remember him, speaking of Crow, on the ground and I grabbed his arms. I'm not too sure what happened after that. My memory's not too clear. I remember clearly I was retarding Crow to stop him handballing. And uh, Tribunal Chairman Alf Board would then ask, do you remember being struck? And Nichols replied, my memory's not too good. He did push me to try and free himself. Did he contact your face? No, to be honest, I can't remember what happened. Some part of his arm may have contacted me, but I can't remember too well. Was it a result of the blow that you don't have a good memory of this? It was the fact of being beaten. It was a torrid game. Did you fall to the ground? I can't remember falling to the ground. I may have been off balance. Then Harry Pollan, tribunal member, asks, you don't seem to be able to remember very much, do you, John? And then Nichols replies, I'm sure his intention was to push me away. Uh, Tribunal member Foley asks, is your eye discoloured? I cannot see without my glasses. And Nichols, no, no, I don't think so. No. So as a result of that tribunal, Charlie... Uh, Neville that's, Crow, that's the very that's the classic player. I I can't recall. I don't remember. Yeah. Not wanting to get anyone in trouble, even though he's the one who absolutely put on a show in the first place to make sure he went to the tribunal. Yeah, and on top of this, Neville Crow had not been reported in 151 games, 11 seasons. Um, yeah, so so he was suspended. He was uh, suspended, and he would miss for the grand final. And eventually, he would never play football again. You're kidding. That was his last game. That was his last game. Oh, that is de- that is just devastating. Isn't it? And so I think I think years later, Nichols did admit that, you know, he didn't actually hit him. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he remembered all of a sudden, did he? Hmm. <laughs> um, this also helps build up that 
uh, animosity between these two clubs has been building. Yes, absolutely. So very interesting game, as you said to me there. Richmond running out 40-point winners in the end, 20-21, 141-14-17, 101. And looking at that scoreline, basically Richmond led by 10 at the end of the first, 20 at the end of the second, 30 at the end of the third, and 40 at the end of the last. So it was a very even performance the whole way through. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that takes us to the prelim. So then uh, Geelong playing up off against Carlton uh, in front of another big crowd, 95,542 people. Um, this was Carlton got off to a ripping start, Timmy. Yeah, so this was Polly Farmer's 100th game of VFL football as well. And Carlton dominated the opening quarter. They built a 27-point lead uh, at halftime. Uh, it was an interesting tactic here. So Polly Farmer spent most of the first half on the back line with Ruckman, Mitchell, and Ryan doing all the work in the ruck. And after halftime, Farmer was moved on to the ball, and he was fresh from not being as, not running as much, and he kind of dominated the tiring John Nichols. This tactic seemed to work. Doug Wade and Sharrick for the Cats contributed five of their eight goals in the third term to give Geelong a 14-point lead at the last change. The Blues had their chances in the last term, but they were very inaccurate, and they, only, they kicked zero goals, six behinds. In fact, Carlton only scored one goal in the whole second half. The Cats ended up yeah. winning by 29 points. Um, this, the final series was the only time Carlton lost consecutive games all season. That is unbelievable when you think of it that way, isn't it? And to let that third quarter is re- really where it all happened, wasn't it? With Carlton kicking one goal to DeLong's eight. Yeah. You can't, yeah. It's even, I mean, even with a lead, you, the momentum's completely switched at that stage, hasn't it? Absolutely. Which leads yes. the grand final. The grandest of finals. So, yeah, Colin, Carlton going out in straight sets, meaning that we've got Geelong versus Richmond. Indeed. Um, 1967 was also the first year the North Melbourne grand final breakfast was held. Ah. Which I believe was a Alan Aylett idea. Charlie, let's, uh, let, let's boot up that way back slightly when machine. We're getting close. <laughs> to um, but- yeah, just the back then. Wait, yeah, it's just the back when machine now, not the yeah, way back when. Not way back, just back anymore. when. Yeah, um, let's boot it up and have a chat to our uh, Freddie Swift. Fred Swift. Captain of the Drought-Breaking Tigers team, welcome. Uh, lovely to speak to you. Thanks, everyone. Magnificent game, Fred. You sound like you're a little bit wound up at the moment. How does it feel? I don't know yet. It's been fantastic so far. I just ran a lap of the ground and I'm absolutely spent. The boys just fought all the way, right to the final siren. Yeah, mate, we can hear. So what, how does a pre- what does a prem feel like to be a premiership player for the first time? Oh, it's hard to put into words at the moment. Terrifically happy. It's been a long time, but now we're the champions. Now, we don't want to take away from the celebrations that we can hear in the background there, but uh, Neville Crowe was a huge loss after that semi-final, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, it really was. We were all bitterly disappointed. To be accused of something you didn't do, then to have Big Nick respond to the tribunal the way he did, it's just very disappointing. Now, having said that, and, you know, no one can replace Neville, but the man who came into his spot was excellent today. Was he ever? John Ronaldson more than earned his spot today. How did you prepare for the game? 
You know, since about round 14 or thereabouts, we've had spectators watching us at training, especially once we knew we would be playing finals. The build-up was just immense. And then to be here today, it just made us realise how special it is. And uh, what do you think? Good day for footy today? Too right, it was a perfect day for footy. Maybe a tad hot, 28 degrees, and the ground was rock hard. The centre wicket, the practice area were like concrete. But a good day for footy. How were the tensions before the game, knowing that none of you had ever played in the grand final before? Yeah, well, before the game, at one stage, everyone was kicked out of the room and there were only players, Tommy Hafey and the runner, just talking about the Cats players we had to be aware of. He said to Billy Barrett, what do you do when Dennis Marshall moves on to you? How you feel about that? This had Billy stunned to silence for a moment, but Mike Patterson was the one to break the tension and just yelled out, he can't wait to get at him. That broke the tension. Everyone kind of cheered. And you know what? To Billy's credit, he went out there and was just about best of field. Now, from on the field, how did you see the start of the game? Well, it started at breakneck pace. We had the wind and the Cats were attacking very early on. They kicked the first, but Royce got an early goal, which settled his nerves and ours. But then the Cats replied quickly, and it appeared that their smaller players were too fast for you uh, Tigers. Well, I wouldn't say too fast, but maybe their experience was helpful to them at that stage. But we fought back, Paul Richardson and Brown, both kicks and goals from free kicks, and then KB popped up with the goal, and suddenly we were in front. Now, it looked like uh, tempers were becoming a little frayed. Ah, yes, this kind of thing happens from time to time. Doug Wade was none too pleased with how he was treated. Oh, I think he had his number taken. And then when the crowd thought the game would settle, it did the opposite. It seemed to go up a notch at the start of the second. My word, it did. It was fast, exciting football. The crowd were very much enjoying it. And luck, it would seem, seemed to be with us. Geelong had their chances for kick points, while Royce and Bull were able to kick straight for us. Now, mate, after a half of football, you led by 16. Uh, was How was the mood in the rooms? Different from the beginning? How were you guys feeling? Tommy wasn't satisfied. He'd expected us to do better. Because we'd been Geelong twice previously, he warned us of complacency. But was it complacency that allowed them back in the third quarter? Well, maybe. They fought back tremendously in the third quarter. They came out and hit us with everything. We were lucky to be in front. Now, the Cats then took their biggest lead in that third quarter, and all their big names were really starting to get the ball and get in the swing of things with Polly Farmer and Goggin and Marshall. How did you guys keep your heads at that stage? Everyone thought it was curtains for us. You could hear the murmurs from the crowd. The supporters starting to lose heart, but what they didn't realise was that because of the pounding Tommy Hafey had dished out during training, we were the fittest team in the league that season. It wasn't until Billy Brown kicked a goal that the momentum shifted back our way. Barrett scored an inspirational goal as well. The game is back in our terms. All right, with only a slender lead at the last break, do you think you had it in you to win? Well, at three-quarter time, I felt we were a big show. But it was edgy all the way through. I wouldn't want to say that at any stage I thought we were going to win it. Now, what did Tommy say to you at that point? Oh, he reminded us of something he had also said pre-game. A letter written by sprinting coach Percy Serity. It was about Herb Elliott's mile races. That anyone can keep with a good side for three quarters, but it's the final term that mattered. And this is where we'd take control of the game and win. Then it was as tight a last quarter as we'd seen in the grand final. Actually, very similar to last year, in fact. Uh, the, court, the scores were levelled several times. Oh, it was hard and fast out there. We would kick a goal, then they'd get one back. There were so many big moments in that last quarter. Yeah, mate, speaking of big moments, where were you when Royce Hart took that mark? <laughs> Enjoying it just like the crowd. It was towards the end of the quarter. The Cats kicked the ball from the back line. It looked like it was going to be too high for him to get to. 
Then he just jumped on Peter Walker and grabbed it out of the air. Oh, it was spectacular. Uh, the Neville Crows replacement, John Ronaldson, took centre stage. Boy, did he ever. He came to the rescue with two unbelievable goals to really put us back in control of the game. Now, I know it was only not too long ago, but what do you, how do you remember those last, those final frantic moments? I remember we gave away a few silly free kicks and then KB popping up and kicking a vital goal right at the end of the game to give us a bit of breathing space. And your mark on the goal line, was it over? Can you tell us? Was it over the line? Oh, I think that's irrelevant, really. The siren sounded maybe 10 seconds later. There'll probably be a bit of discussion around it, but with no time left, I don't think it made a difference in the end. And then the siren sounded, mate, and after those 23 long years, the Tigers are premiers again. So today's game has instant classic written all over it. But looking back at the game as a whole, how do you rate it? Oh, I thought it was a great game between two teams, and I, I think the luck of the game was with us at the finish. And I thought we were just better at the finish. There was nothing between the teams. Neither team shirked in any way. 18 players on either side. We just had a break at the finish. And sometimes it seems luck is on your side, and today you seem to have it. Oh, my word, we did. I'm, I'm only sorry for one thing, and that's that the late Len Smith is not here. He started all this to share in us with our joy. We're very lucky to have good administration led by Ray Dunn, you know, a capable secretary. He followed it through. Uh, hold on, speaking to the president, he's just jumping up to speak. Just hang on a sec. Now, as a guest, thanks to Tommy Hayes in the coat. Please, please, please. Now, we want to call for donations. Donations, everyone will be acknowledged. Donations from everybody here to give them a chance. $20 from me, $20 from Senator Canelli, $20 from Ron Gallagher. Right, right, right. $120. Sorry about that. Was that the last question? Mate, uh, who do you reckon the standout uh, was on field today in your eyes, Freddie? Oh, well, as I said earlier, Billy Barrett was great for us. Voice Hart, three goals. So did KB. Mike Patterson took it right up to the long rucks. It was just a great day and a, a great team win. This could be the start of something very special, Fred. You've got such a young team, and today you achieved the ultimate success. Well, yes, we're very pleased, but we'll worry about next year, next year. Mate, now, before you leave us, you've got to tell us, how do you think you will remember today? Oh, uh, well, that's the biggest thrill of my life. I'll never forget the thrill of running around holding the cup. It's a thing you dream about, but today it came true for me. Thanks, Fred. Enjoy the celebration. Cheers. We will. Thanks, all. All right. Um, that was a good chat. Yeah, beautiful. All right, so goal kickers, goal kickers for the Tigers. We've got three to Bartlett, three to Billy Brown, three to Royce Hart, three to John Ronaldson, who is Tony Ronaldson's father, by the way. Ah. Um, and one each to Barrett, Gwynane, Alan Richardson, and Barry Richardson. And best were those players that are that three swift name for us. Yes, yes. And I didn't didn't get to mention my favourite part. The crowd at the G this day, 109,396 people. Massive. Um, now, I've been reading through the Polypharma uh, story, the book about yes. done by Steve Hawke. 
And the Cats really feel hard done by. They feel they really felt like they should have won this game. And you look yeah. at some of these stats. So marks 79 to 58 in favor of Geelong. Kicks 200, 223 to 207 in favor of Geelong. Handballs 55 to 50 in front of in to Geelong as well. Um, and free kicks, I think, were 40 to 28 in favor of Richmond. And uh. they kind of um they talk. Polly Farmer talks about like all the free kicks that Richmond seemed to get were always near their goals. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Freddie Swift talked about luck there. Like John Ronaldson shouldn't have been able to get those goals. Like he kicked two accidental goals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it just seemed like it was going their way. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. Is there? Is you've just got to, you've got to make the most of the opportunities when they come your way and hope the ones going the other way aren't too, uh, don't don't hurt you too much. And in this case, it seemed like they did. Yeah, so Polly, Polly always thought that was the game that got Yeah, that was the one that got away for him. That was the one that got away. Well, it was very close, wasn't it? And as you said, those stats do seem to stack up in Geelong's favour. So very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, other winners for the year. So under 19, we've got Richmond beating Fitzroy, 83 to 77. The Jeez, reserves, that's good signs for the Tigers. Well, the reserves, North Melbourne beat Richmond 103 to 79, which meant the McClellan Trophy went to Richmond, of course. Yeah, of course, yep. Um, the Little League Trophy, though, Charlie, you'll be happy to know went to Melbourne. Woo! We'll take it at this stage. Indeed. All right. So let's uh, let us wrap up the season then. At the end of another classic season. Go on. Uh, premiers. Premiers, of course, those mighty Tigers breaking that drought and giving them their – what number premiership was this, Timmy? Good question. Uh, this would be six. Number six, okay. So they're, climb, they're climbing up that that, uh, that ladder. Yep. Um, premiers, uh, Brownlow medal. The Brownlow medal was uh, St Kilda's Ross Smith with 24 votes. Um, leading goal kicker, Charlie. The leading goal kicker was Dougie Wade with 96 goals. 17 of those were in the final series. So 89 for the uh, for the Coleman. 79. 79, sorry. How's my, how's my quick maths there? <laughs> 79 for the Coleman. Um, fun fact as well, the leading behind kickers were Peter Hudson and Royce Hart tied on 55 behinds. <laughs> Footscray took the wooden spoon, uh, their second, only their second wooden spoon overall. That's um, not bad. Premiership tallies we've got for 1967. Collingwood, 13. Essendon, 12. Melbourne, 12. Carlton, 8. Fitzroy, 8. Geelong, 6. Richmond, 6. Sounds right. South Melbourne, 3. Footscray, 1. Hawthorne, 1. St Kilda, 1. How much do you love the fact that E is before M in the ladder so you can say Essendon before Melbourne at the mm. moment? I do. A <laughs> few um, other little stats here. The highest score was Richmond against Hawthorne, 23 goals, 30, 168. Um, and my retrospective Rising Star Award. Oh, yes. Really tough one this year. And I have to use official Rising Star um, rules. So Jezelenko's too old. He, he can't be included. I've given it to Royce Hart. I believe. I he's... mean, it has to be, doesn't it? Well, second was John Murphy. Third was Peter Hudson. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tough season to, to judge. That is huge, isn't it? Yeah, gosh. And I spoke. I think you made the right call there. Thank you. I've spoken to Kaz and he has given the best name, I think we're not surprised, to Weenie Van Lint. <laughs> ah. 
<laughs> of course. Right, retirees. Holly Farmer. 101 games, 65 goals. Jack Clark. Essendon. 263 games, 180 goals, two flags. Holly Farmer. 101 games for Geelong, 65 goals, one flag. John Britt, Taz Britt, 193 games, 303 goals, two flags. Huey Mitchell, Essendon, 224 games, 301 goals, two flags. John Somerville, 106 games, 96 goals, one flag. That's a lot of a lot of experience there leaving for Essendon. Fred Swift, 146 games for Richmond, 41 goals, uh, and he goes out a premiership captain. Neville Crow, Richmond as well, 150 games, 84 goals, finishing his career in disappointing fashion. Noel Teasdale, North Melbourne, 178 games, 71 goals. Michael Gordian, North Melbourne, 152 games, 44 goals. Kevin Rose of Collingwood, 149, 159 games, 47 goals, one flag. And Don Blue, umpire, uh, perfect name for the umpire as well, finishing with 69 games, no finals, no grand finals. Now, the only other bit of news, Charlie, was post-season, Harry Blatzell took a squad of players over to Ireland to play, but we're not going to talk about that now. We're going to have a special episode discussing that. About the Galactus. Absolutely, we are. If you want to, if you, if listeners out there want to give themselves a little bit of a, a uh, crash course before we talk about that, get on to, is it, it's on Stan, isn't it? It's on it? Stan, yeah. Get on to Stan and watch a little doco called The Galars. Um, we're looking forward to, uh, to talking more about that. Yeah. Uh, um, so that brings us to the end. Another of big year. Exciting one. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost Disappoint- at the 70s, uh, 60s. I know, unbelievable. Disappointing that the Saints have dropped dropped out of contention again, but the Tigers look as though they're starting a dynasty, Timmy. We love that word, don't we? We we do. And I'm telling you, it's once you break a drought, it's really hard to follow that up as you will it find out in twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah. Well, we hopefully we won't find out <laughs> how hard it is. Uh, but yeah, so sixty seven done, as you said, we're almost in into the seventies. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, Charlie. I've started doing some prep for our end of year wrap up team that we're going to make. There are some I cannot, champions. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be it's going to be one of the hardest ones we've had. I think. Yeah, it's going to be very tricky. Uh, so, well, there we go. So, another yeah, another season wrapped up. Play, uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our nineteen sixty seven episode and all the all our little specials here and there. Go back and have a listen to some others if you've missed them and. Uh, uh, please recommend us to friends and give us a give us a rating. It helps other people find us. And and uh, thank you again just for listening to us talk about what we love to do. Um, so until uh, until sixty eight. No, until the until the galas. Until the galas, yes, and then sixty eight. So we'll cross uh, over the and we'll cross over the, to uh, to Joey now to talk about around the grounds. But yeah, yes, yes, can't wait. I'll be Hello and welcome back to Around the Grounds. Let's get 1967 underway, starting with the VFA. Uh, this was the first season where, where games were telecast live on TV. Uh, Channel 10 was telecasting association games, one live game each Saturday and Sunday for the whole season, which is a big step forward. Uh, minor Premiers Dandenong had won their first flag, defeating reigning Premiers Port Melbourne by 25 points. 
This was an eventful grand final as Port's full forward Jack Peck was arguing with the umpire uh, David Jackson for a downfield free kick against Port Melbourne, resulting in him getting uh, reported. As the team was already frustrated with the lopsided free kick count, Port's captain coach Brian Buckley had told his team to walk off and forfeit the game. Luckily enough, the club officials had ordered them to continue playing, uh, which resulted in the game seeing no further incidents. Uh, Preston's Johnny Walk has won back-to-back Division I leading colleague awards with 80 home and away goals. And the JJ Liston medalist was won by Coburg's John Sullican with 38 points. Sadly, runner-up Sandy Sandringham's Paul Lads, who had, got, who had got 27 votes, had died in a car accident in the final week of the home and away season. In Division 2, Oakley has won their second Division 2 flag, leading uh, beating Geelong West by 13 points, and consequently replacing Williamstown in getting promoted to Division 1 for next year's season. Morty Alex Frank Power had kicked 84 goals, uh, winning the leading goal kick award, and Larry uh, Caulfield's Larry Rowe was originally awarded the sole winner of the division's BNF after countback, but after the 1987 ruling uh, re- reversing all countback deci- uh, de- decisions, Northcote's Colin Sleep was recognised as a tied winner, both with 22 votes. Still in Victoria, in the VAFA, Q's John A. Fisher has won the JN Woodrow Medal with 23 votes. Old Scotch's G.G. McLean has won the leading goalkeeper award with 50 home and away goals. And Old Paradians have won, have gone back-to-back, beating Caulfield Grammar by three goals. Across the border in the Sandful, Sturt has won their seventh flag, winning, back to, uh, winning back-to-back, beating minor premiers North Adelaide by 11 points. Port's Trevor Opst and North Adelaide's Dan Linder have tied for the McGarry middle with 18 votes. And North Adelaide's Dennis Sash has won the leading goal kick award with 90 goals. Across the Nullarbor in the Waffle, Perth beat minor premiers East Perth by 18 points, winning their first flag. And, and Perth Barry Cable has won the Simpson medal for best of field. The Bernie Naylor medalist is Phil Tooney from East Perth with 119 goals. Uh, we have another tie in the uh, in the BNFs uh, with the Sandover medal going to Swan District's Bill Walker and Clermont's John Parkinson with 19 votes apiece. Uh, this uh, that makes three consecutive Sandover medals for Walker. Uh, across the straight in the uh, Tassie Footy League. Uh, this is actually some major news coming out of here. Uh, this year's grand final is the only major state grand final to be decided as a no game. Uh, North Hobart's David Collins had marked the ball about 15 metres out uh, on the siren, uh, with with Hobart up by a point. Uh, Wynard supporters obviously believing the mark was taken after the after the siren, and but the umpires had ruled against that, saying it was in play. Therefore, Wynard supporters, in protest, marched in the field and removed the posts, 
and as a result, the game was ruled no game, and no state premiership was awarded for that year. Finally, in the NTFL, the 87-88 season sees Darwin win their 15th premiership with a 44-point win, and St. Mary's scoring a dismal 8 points uh, for the uh, grand final. And this saw Darwin get their revenge from last year's grand final over St. Mary's. Darwin's Don Stokes has won the Nichols medal. And thank you for listening. Have a great day. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.